Hey everyone, before the big Hi Guys intro, please may I request of you to subscribe to and rate this podcast, as apparently that's really important in the algorithmic world that is podcast land. Once again, please subscribe to and rate this podcast. On with the show. Hi guys, and welcome to a super, super sensitive episode of How to Wow, starring Philip Schofield, who has written a book about his life. I have it here, Philip Schofield's Life's What You Make It, a memoir of his amazing career from start to present, including, of course, the story leading up to the 7th of February this year, when he came out as gay on his own show this morning with his best pal, Holly Willoughby, live on the telly. It's a fascinating tale. Philip's life would be fascinating anyway uh, without what has happened in the last 12 months. But of course, that makes it all the more engaging as a read and as a listen. So without further ado, and I never say that because I don't really like it, but I, I really think without further ado, cue the conversation. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Well done. Thank you. Not congratulations because you wouldn't like that. It's well done, isn't it? Um, that's nice. Coming from you, I'm fine. That's the lovely. Thank oh, you. mate, this book is something else. I wasn't ready for it. I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm. I'm not nervous about this conversation we're going to have. But I think you know I might go a lot more than you in it because you've you've pra- you're now practiced at talking about what you've written. I suppose. Well, uh, if I'm honest, I haven't done that many interviews. Um, for this reason, um, it's getting better each time I do it. The audio book was incredibly hard to read out loud. Um, parts of it were great fun, obviously. There's there's lots that's great fun. Uh, and I wanted it to be, a, obviously, a balance between... I knew what was coming at the end, but I wanted the other stories, all the stories that my mates had said, oh, my God, you have to write that down, you have to write that down. But, um, but yeah, that's been... That was tough. I'm sure, I'm sure. I mean, it is laugh-out-loud funny. Some of it's so Good. funny. Uh, <laughs> and I said on the air when we came in at half-past six, because I, I set the alarm for two o'clock this morning to, to carry on reading it, because I just wanted... I, I, I'm so glad I did, by the way. And... Um, I said, you know, it had me laughing and crying. It, la- it was laugh, cry, laugh, laugh, cry, laugh within seven pages. It's that seven minutes of that yo-yo of emotion. So what's it been like for you? I have no idea at all. Um, let's, kick, let's kick off with a funny. Um, when you, you, you made that secret trip down to Cornwall to, to come out to your mum, mm. you know, and she was next in your relay of coming out, mm. people to come out to, uh, and you... you, you you bought some. You tell the story. You bought some fish and chips. Well, I um, I have a, an incredibly loyal and wonderful driver called Tony, who's been with me for years and years and years. And Tony scraped me up and knows all my mates, knows the ones that's, that, that are going to lead me astray. And I knew I had to go down to Cornwall. I thought I am. There's no way that I'm going to be able to concentrate, knowing what I'm about to do. There's no way I can concentrate. So I'm going to need Tony to drive me down, which is extravagant in the extreme. But anyway, Tony drove me down to Cornwall. I said, stop off and get some fish and chips. And we always go to this place called Flounders in Newquay, which is my favourite fish and chip shop. And picked it up, went round to my mum. She knew I was coming and she knew something was up. And um, and I went in and uh, she's got the most beautiful apartment, which overlooks Fistral Beach, which is my childhood wrapped up in a in a landscape, really. And so um, I sat down and we chatted and she and we chatted and... Um, I have uh, floaters in my eyes, which drive me crazy. I don't talk about them very much. I've talked about them more, obviously, because they're mentioned in the book. And loads of people have come to me and said, oh, my God, me too. 
But this is not like the little bits that you see floating. This is like a filthy bathroom window drifting in front of my vision. And we're getting closer and closer to being able to find someone who can fix them. And they drive me mad. But they're not dangerous in any way. They just drive me mad, especially if they hover over an autocue or something that I'm reading. And um, so I went down there. My mum knows about these. And I, we had our fish and chips. And, uh, and I said, Mum, I have, I have something to tell you. So she said, OK, all right, OK. Um, I said, I'm... Well, um, I'm gay. And, um, and she went, oh, thank God. And I looked at her and she said, I thought you were going blind. <laughs> and I thought, where does that... And I said, what the <laughs> hell do you mean? Why do you think I'm going blind? She said, well, those things you've got in your eyes. And I know you've been very sad recently. I said, no, Mum, no, no, I'm not going blind. But the, the reaction from pretty much everyone uh, in recent times before what we call we called the event, which is the event in the book as well. Um, when I when I actually told everybody, they they all to a man and woman went, "Oh, thank God, we thought you were seriously ill." <laughs> Martin Frizzell, your boss at this I morning, know. he said, "Oh, God, thank God, I thought you were dying." Yeah, and the viewers actually uh, ha- yeah. had similar thoughts because of the way you looked I on had, screen. The weight had dropped off me. Um, seriously, I just couldn't eat. I couldn't drink. I describe loops in there um, of it just going round and round and round in your head, and it's so torturing. And uh, and so my um, you know the 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 relief of being able to tell people what it was that was actually silencing me in the makeup room, and I'm just sort of sitting there. We have, we have such a brilliant atmosphere. There's such a you've seen in there. I mean, it's such a great team, great fun, and we have a laugh every day. And then suddenly I was laughing slightly less, you know, and it was getting a bit more serious and I was losing weight and and, and people would say how, what a wonderful weekend they'd had and how was my weekend and I would have just stared in the, into the fire and talked to Steph and, and these loops, you know, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You have to come out, you have to come out, you can't come out, you can't, you have to, but you can't. What are the consequences? Yeah, but what are the consequences if you don't? So it was that sort of thing. It was weighing up. Could I live with this myself and the damage that it was doing to me, knowing the damage that if I didn't live with it just on my own and I did make it public, what it was going to do to my family? And that was the hardest thing of all. But the closer it the family, whether it's your work family or, or your family at home, uh, the more people know when something's not right. And um, you, the people you work with at this morning, you've been with forever, haven't you? Yeah. More or less forever. In, in uh, tele terms, forever. Yeah, it's about... 18, 19 years now. And they knew something was up, but they didn't know what. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, a couple of them sort of gently confronted you with, uh, you know, in the six months prior to September the 7th, so, so February the 7th. Uh, what kind of things were they saying to you? Well, it was just really Holly. I mean, uh, Holly pulled me to one side, and this was, wow. I mean, we've been at TV Centre for a couple of years, and this was when we were at the South Bank. And so it was a little while ago. And she pulled me over to one side and said, are you okay? So I said, yeah, yeah, fine, I'm fine, I'm okay. Are you absolutely sure? So I said, no, 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 I'm fine, I'm absolutely fine. And she said, well, you will tell me, you will talk to me, won't you? Um, and I said, yeah, of course. Uh, and Gino, when we were in the studio, Gino De Campo, and he was cooking and we were in a commercial break and he was about to do something. And I, uh, I didn't realise until Gino put his hand on my shoulder and said, are you okay? So I said, yes, I'm fine. 
He said, you, this is a four-minute commercial break for three and a half minutes. You have been standing in the middle of the studio floor looking at your feet on your own. What's the matter? I said, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. Just, you know, sort of concentrating, just thinking. And, uh, and he gave me the universal sign for call me, and I didn't, you know. So there were a few people who, who spotted it. Um, but um, I think the, the great thing for all of them was, was relief when they found out that, um, that it, I wasn't dying. I know, all going, all going blind. blind. <laughs> Still time. Yeah. Well, one of them's definitely going to happen. But, um, but you felt like you were dying. Yeah. That's the difference, isn't it? There, yeah. was, there was a sort of psychological... Uh, mortality that was within... I just wasn't me anymore. I lost me. Yeah. And I still haven't found me, um, if I'm honest. And I've tried all the way through this to, to you know, to, to writing the book and and in and, and the few interviews that I'm doing uh, to be as honest as I possibly can be. And I don't know that I've necessarily found me yet. Um, and, I'm and you know, it, it's okay. Uh, I think it's okay for me to look. Um, I, I, I have recently found myself finding it easier to laugh more um it's always funny with holly we always laugh anyway but you know it's it's um it's just you think oh no that feels nice it feels nice to laugh that that feels better and so finding me is is the is the um that's the goal for the moment Apart from the obvious, I thought the most candid pages of the book are the last couple where you talk about this. And that, they really surprised me. We'll go back to that later if you don't mind. Mm. Um, but, of course, this morning has you have a team psychotherapist there anyway, don't you? Mm. Yeah. We have a lady called Penny. And, Penny, um, if you phone in to this morning and, uh, and it is obviously whatever we do on the telly can't be resolved and there's something much more serious and we can sometimes spot hang on a second there's something underlying here stay on the line and we'll you know we'll talk to you in a minute and it's usually penny and penny is an angel in uh, human clothes and so so that penny will talk to the the people um afterwards and penny's office is next door to my dressing room and uh she walked out she caught me one day this was before the event and uh, and she just um stopped me and said what's the matter so i said nothing so she said, tell me what's tell me what's the matter so i said no no nothing nothing is the matter um and uh, she said every day i see you walk past my office door going from your dressing room to make up you've got your head down she said you're not you what's the matter and i said there's nothing the matter and i i, I won't swear on your radio show but she said you're a lying and, uh, and 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 we left it at that and penny was on the day of the event when i was in the studio when my my thumb pressed that button and posted what i posted um uh, penny was the sort of second or third port of call her office and she was in floods of tears and she said i just knew something was wrong she said no now you can talk it's a, it is a fascinating tale. I, I remember when the last time I saw you before you just walked in now was when I came on the show last year. Yeah. Um, and you know, I didn't recognize you. Mm. You know, and it's, it's, you know, and Holly gave me a look. And I thought, you know, something's going on here. Mm. And um, you look like a little old man. Do you know what I mean? Because um, there was nothing of you mm. at all. And so, so you'd, um, so you, so you literally couldn't eat, and you'd lost. You were conscious about your weight anyway, because you just had a fat photo. You remember about a fat yeah. photo, didn't you? <laughs> Steph and I were walking. We went to the Hamptons. We had the most amazing holiday in the Hamptons, and uh, and we had a picture taken. We went with some friends, and we had a picture taken walking down the beach, 
uh, and I looked at it and thought, oh, my God. Yeah. Um, you know, you have you are definitely getting more rotund now. Yeah. You have to do something about this. And this was ages ago, and so I went on the five two diet, and the five two diet worked amazingly well. <laughs> Too well, so so well. I shrunk my stomach, yeah. uh, had halved my appetite, yeah. and it actually was really easy. Mm. And I maintained my weight at about eleven stone, eleven eleven and a half. Yeah, and um, and that was fine. And I, actually, I dropped slightly below eleven and went into the tens with um, with the five two. And ITV phoned up my management and said is he all right so he said uh, yeah he's looking a bit skinny on the telly and 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 paul who features a lot in the book said um uh, mate i think you've probably gone a bit too fast i said okay fine 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 so then i you know stayed at about 11 just over 11 um and uh and then i got down to i saw the nines 9 12 9 11 and uh and and steph was obviously desperately worried for me um, and trying to make me eat, and it was frustrating, you know, everybody because you know it, I just couldn't. It's not not you know I, not case if I didn't want to. I just could I could. It was the last thing on my mind. Mm. Um, so yeah, so I uh, I got I got very very skinny. Yeah, you did. And do you th- do you feel like not only physically, but do you, do you feel like you know uh, did you feel like you almost began to disappear wholly? Yeah, yeah. I I, I think I, that would be a fair. A fair assumption that that uh, but I think what you do, what I did, and I think what a lot of people do if they're in trouble for for any sort of reasons in their head, is they you disappear inside yourself, um, and that's when you're lost. When you when when all you're all you're doing is thinking about whatever it is that is on your mind, yeah. and it can be it can be work. I'm very conscious, you know. Of, we speak now. We're you know broadcasting across the country. Um, look where we all are. Look where everyone is at the moment. Look at the look at the things that that people that that everyone has to deal with and cope with. So I'm very aware of that. You know, sort of my my issues are tiny issues compared to the issues that people have been thrown up this year for everyone. Um, so so I say that you have to talk. You know, even even if you're not a talker, even if it's not something that you do, if you are if you are in trouble, you can't do it on your own. And it will eat you up. And that was what saved me, was talking out loud. I mean, I, 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 there's a couple of stories about, you know, about sort of psychiatrists, so I'll t- tell you in a second. So, so you've, you've, you have got to talk to somebody. Um, even if it's a mate, you have to trust someone with your burden, whatever that may be. And that's in answer to your question. Yeah, you, I just lost myself inside my head. Yeah, the, the traffic starts to flow the other way. The traffic yeah. of life stops emanating yeah. and starts coming in and that's what pushes you down and it well, gnarls you up. Well, I, I thought, are you okay, okay. Um, and it was actually instigated by, the, by, by my office and the people who knew me, who knew that I was you know, in, in serious trouble. You have to talk to someone. So I found a psychiatrist and I thought, well, I'll go and see the psychiatrist. And, and that works for a lot of people. It didn't work for me because I couldn't do the hour, your hours up and then be cast out onto the street having sobbed myself senseless and then end up on the street waiting. You know, Tony's waiting to pick me up in the car. I thought, well, I can't get in the car with red eyes and wet face and blotchy. So I can't do that. So I just nick round the corner 
and um, and I'm standing there with when it was a sunny day. I've got my head up against the brick wall, and the sun is on my face, and I'm trying to sort of sort my eyes out and my sort my face out. <laughs> and a guy came up on a bike and pulled it and went, Phil. So I said, oh, hi. He said, uh, oh, mate, you've got to come and see Kinky Boots. It's fantastic. I'm in it. Oh, and cycled off. Oh, okay, yeah, will do. Oh, God. So I thought, no, this is not necessarily for me. And, the, and another time I went, <laughs> went round, had my hour, absolutely drained, drawn out, went round the corner, leant up against a, g- a gate. <laughs> and you know those gates that go down into someone's basement outside. I it it opened and I and as the, and and I am you know so feeling at the depths of despair oh, and I went back grabbed the gate as the gate went and swung round over this huge drop uh, before I fell down into someone's basement and actually out on the street it made me laugh out loud because it looked so ridiculous and I thought uh, I'm not I'm not doing this anymore and so I found a psychologist and a psychologist has been much better for me. It's funny though, isn't it? There was a sign, wasn't it? Some, some there were uni- I know you're a big believer in the universe and all this kind of stuff. So the universe saying, it's not for you. Not for you. You, you keep going there. <laughs> Things like this are going to keep happening. I've it- thrown the bloke at the bike at you, and now you've nearly gone into a basement. So it's not for yeah. you. Guess what's coming next? Big bus, big old red London bus. Good luck with that one. I think the best way to tell the story, and it's up to you. Um, but I think the best way to continue to tell the story is to work backwards from the announcement. If you, mm. I, I just I just think that's an interesting way to go. And also, it's a timeline that could, people can identify with. So the 7th of September was D-Day uh, for the event. And the, the, the whole... 7th of February. Sorry, I keep saying that. Sorry, 7th of February. I don't know why. Um and you call it the event. It's not a grandiose term. It's just it's just an, it's just a, a term that you all agreed you would use. Well, it was a WhatsApp group. Yeah, it was. A, I had to call it something. Yeah. There were people who increasingly people who were in on the secret. My my and this, this is this is not mates. This is uh, office and yeah. management. And w- when you start to plan something, yeah. and was, so so we so the only reason it's called the event is because that was what it was called on WhatsApp. Yeah, it's not a new format. No, it sounds like it might be. Yeah. It could be. I'm not pitching that one. <laughs> who knows? Who knows? Never say never, Phil. I don't want to. We're, host in, that. we're in show business, Phil. For heaven's sake. And so, um, so the event is going to take place on the seventh of Feb, mm. and you decide just before the show you're going to drop or post an Instagram mm. message, um, which was essentially uh, that you. My first words were, "You never know what's going on in someone's seemingly perfect life," um, and I and I sat down and wrote that. You know, I'd had it on my phone for, well, I wrote it, then I sent it on the event because on the event there were lawyers and there were PR people and all of that sort of stuff who were brought in uh, to manage it. And that's the worst thing about something like this is the fact that it has to be sort of managed. Yeah. Um, and I hated that. Uh, and so uh, so that was, yes, that was approved. What you've written there is absolutely right. And then on the, on the day, I went in on a Friday with... With because uh, I'd, I'd Holly and I had gone out for um, a long sort of it wasn't a drink or lunch really we were just discuss it was a meeting where we had drinks but we stayed very sober because which is unlike us because it was a serious <laughs> uh, serious subject you know what do I do what am I going to do how are we going to do this and I said I've thought about it a lot and I think what I should do is that I'll we'll do it on a, th- a Thursday Thursday morning because we don't do Fridays. I said, we'll do it on a Thursday morning and, I, and then, um, you know, I, I, want, I want you to interview me and then um, I'll go and you carry on and we'll get, you know, sort of someone in to do the rest of the show. And she burst out laughing and said, are you joking? 
So I said, well, what, 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 I can't think of another. She said, that's ridiculous. You honestly believe that you are going to do something like that and then get up and go without me? Um, she said, we do this and we do it together and we leave together. So it has to be a Friday. And then we found the Friday that actually worked. Um, because Holly has been astonishing. Like, that made me cry. Literally. The best mate. She's quite wise. She's, quite, she's, she's wise beyond her years, Philip. It's not fair. Yeah, that's true. She's she's serene. Um, she's um, she's uh, calming and and sensible, um, and she's balanced. You know, uh, and not just for me, but also for Steph. You know, she's she's been balanced across across the board. We we yeah, when lockdown happened, we were. Obviously, as was everyone, you know, terrified. Are we coming off air? Are, we, are they shutting us down? And they put... Um, uh, I used to have a flat just around the corner from here, actually. And it was the uh, the, the house out in, in, in the country has got had the worst Wi-Fi possible. Uh, useless Wi-Fi. Impossible to broadcast from there. And so... Um, so they said, well, you've got your flat. Why didn't we put a, put, a, put a unit in the flat? And they put a full broadcast camera unit in all our houses in case we were taken off air. And it just sat there and sat there and sat there. And it was a lovely day when, you know, the bosses this morning said, you know, I think we can, we're not going to use these. We, we think we can take them out. And they're costing a fortune. Um, and so, uh, so, but Holly and I, was, we stayed together. Um, and it was just us in the makeup room. And normally it's a big buzzing team and the you know holly's got her team around her Her, it's like a ferrari pit stop and uh and so it was just us and uh and we're doing our own makeup and we're two meters apart and every and we're watching our the wheels fall off the world um and it was like a therapy session you know how are you today i'm okay i'm okay i'm all right are you sure you know and just chatting things through and that was, in a way, although we missed everyone, um, just us in that makeup room. I will really treasure that. And so um, you drop, you post the Instagram message, um, which you had on your phone for ages, because, you know, composing those messages, that's, that's a, an intricate process, isn't it? Mm. You know, what words to write? You know, how, how often did that change, that not, the, the not text? Not much, actually. From, from what I sat down one night, um, and I was sitting by the fire... Um, and uh, <clears throat> those are the words that I thought sort of best summed up. I wrote two because I wrote one that I was going to send um, at I think what was it nine forty five, uh, and about twenty minutes before that I had written one for all my friends who didn't know, um, and I sent that one first and said this is what I'm about to do, and then the other one went afterwards. So Holly reads it out. This is how, this is what you decided to do. Holly Holly reads. Um, she sits down, and and the thing about Ruth because Ruth and Eamon were hosting that day, and on the script because it had to be secret, at the top of the, the running order was a a ten minute as yet unidentified news item. So some everybody knew something was going on, but they didn't know what. Well, it, no, because the funny thing is that you can have with a show like this morning regularly, um, we can leave a big gap for something, and um, and you can you can start the show. <clears throat> And what we what we were do what we do at the, the beginning of the show, we've all sorted out twenty minutes before, uh, and so um, and now of course you 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 can uh, it's, it's much easier now because you can just get people on Zoom you know then before 
the days that we live in now. You had to get them into the studio. So it can it's a it's very um it's it's a, a show that moves very fast. It's very um, live and limber and quick, which is amazing for a big bulky two and a half hours on the telly. And so uh, it's not unusual to have a big gap at the beginning of the show. And so there was a it was just said news item on the on the scripts. But very few people knew that it was going to be you. That was the news item. Uh, who knew? Well, um, Martin Frizzell, who's the who's our um, incredible editor, Emma Gormley, who's the head of daytime, uh, she knew. Um, Kevin Ligo, who's the who's the big boss. Kevin knew. Uh, the press department at ITV knew. Um, <clears throat> my office obviously knew. Uh, the family, obviously, they they were all in in the in the mix as well. So there were, you know, there were a few people that knew what it was, what was going to happen, but no, very, very few people at work. So you know. makeup, wardrobe. Um, David and Susie, my team, were there, uh, but they didn't know why. And I asked them. I said, "I'm, I'm in on Friday. Can you come in?" What did they think? Did, didn't know what it was. They thought I was resigning. Did they? Yeah, they thought I was quitting, and, well, and they thought I was poorly. They, cameras, sound. No one knew. Gallery. Nope. Wow. No one knew. Wow. Until I posted the thing, you know. Obviously, news travels very, very fast. Yeah. But when I, when my thumb actually, and that was a, you know, moment writing, writing that in the book was, you know, I can. It's just so vivid, you know. I, I was in the dressing room with um, Susie, who who does my makeup, David, who does all my clothes, and Holly, and we're just sitting in this dressing room together because I couldn't use my normal dressing room because on a Friday, obviously, that becomes Eamon's dressing room. And we're all in the guest dressing room. And I said, right, okay, well, you know, sort of this is it. And I had my my phone in my hand and my thumbs just pressed, just hovering over send. And thinking, when you do this, nothing is going to be the same again. This is, this is going to change not just my life, but it's going to change everyone's life, all the lives of those around you, when you press send. And we just all looked at each other. And I said, it has to go at 9.45, because that gives everyone... Well, and we also had a newspaper journalist who was being kept across the road in White City House, and they didn't know why, and, but they'd been told, because I'd said I'd do one newspaper interview. Um, you might want to come down, because there's something going to happen today. And obviously, newspaper people will bite on that. So, yeah, of course, so they sent someone down. Um, and, then my, and then I press send, and here we are. <laughs> yeah, here we are. Um did were you aware when your your thumb was hovering over the send button that that Instagram post would also save lives? No, <laughs> no. <clears throat> it was only after that I realised because my head probably got very very selfish. Um, I, I thought a lot about me. I mean, a lot about Steph and the girls and the family. But I, I will admit to, you know, as we said earlier on, you get lost in your own head, um, in the darkness of your own head. And I got lost very much in the darkness of my own head and was, you know, sort of quite selfish. So I didn't think about the consequences, the wider consequences. Yes, I was concerned for family. I was concerned for job. You know, what is this going to do? How will people see me? Um, are they going to look at me differently? Um, how are they going to react? You know, are people going to, whereas people would have been nice, are they going to be mean? You know, what is it going to be like? What's the reaction going to be like? Um, and only when I did it, only when I, when we were a day after, did I, or actually that day, did I realise what 
it had become. And that made me feel so much better, knowing that I'd had a really, really rough time in the press, um, and, and you know, which is the way things happen. You know, sometimes it's your turn. Um, it was it was tricky because it, it it was inaccurate and very untrue. However, you know, we're all held to account, and there's nothing wrong with that. And so that on being being given a very very hard time, a sustained hard time. And and having a sex, this major sexuality issue in my head as well, um, was was what nearly pushed me over the edge. Um, and one of the journalists who had given me a hard time um, texted me. So obviously I had my number all the way through, um, but texted me and said, uh, uh, didn't text me to find out whether anything they were writing was true, but nevertheless texted me afterwards and said, what you've done has set our cause um, forward uh, ten years. Um, and, I, and that was the first indication that I thought, that's that's interesting. I'd not really thought about that. And then it continued beyond that, much, much wider. And it continues today. Um, actually, last night, somebody messaged me and said, you saved my life. Um, and you made it okay. When you talk about the edge, nearly pushed you over the edge. Mm. Tell us about that. What 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 edge edge are you specifically Just talking about? Just when you get to the point where you think, um, I don't know whether I want to be here anymore, and that was a frightening place to be, but I think I was very very lucky that I had Steph to grab my collar and haul me back not physically but but certainly mentally we, she when on the darkest nights she sort of sat up with me and we just talked um because you know it did come in waves uh and so i was lucky that i had that support um and that's why we ran project 84 uh when we were on the south bank and 84 men who take their lives every week and we put statues it was a most incredible um, art installation statues life-size statues of men um, on the building uh, on the this morning building and on the main tower um, as a representation and these were um, some of them were dressed in the clothes of the men who had you know taken their lives and their families had gone into their wardrobes and and put uh, put the clothes on and those men hadn't found a way back and they hadn't either spoken to anyone or had been saved. Uh, and I was lucky because I had, and I had Steph to talk to, and, and she did pull me back. So uh, you know this better than I do, but when we're talking about things like this, we have to sort of um, say to people listening, you know, if any of this is ringing true with you, then um, mm. we're going to carry on talking about the subject for a while. Um, what would your advice be now to anybody? Um, you have to, as I've said a number of times in our chat today, you have to talk to somebody. You have to reach out. If it's if it's that bad, then you the the the, the loving, wonderful arms of the Samaritans, and you may think, how could I ever? I can't ever do that. I couldn't ever do that. They are amazing, and so you know you you. Your head will consume you if you don't let off steam in one way or another, whether it is talking to one friend that you pick, you have to talk to your family, 
there is absolutely nothing wrong with showing weakness. It's not like that anymore. We're not expected. As men, we're not expected to be this anymore. You don't have to be that. You can show a weakness. Um, that was always my thing, you know, in, in not, not um, in a sexuality thing, but in, you know, show no weakness, show no weakness type of thing. Someone would say something and you think, right, okay, well, we plough on through, thick skin, you carry on, you know, show no weakness. Um, but that's not true now. And there is nothing wrong with saying, actually, do you know what? I'm really struggling. I might be in trouble here. And so I would say, you know, and have said, you've got to talk to someone. And you, if, if there isn't anyone in you, within your family or around you that you think you can trust with, whatever it is that you want to say, then ask for help. There are so many helplines. Calm are amazing. The Samaritans are incredible. And I say that a lot. You know, people who contact me and un unload big time, um, there's only so much I can do. I'm not a trained psychologist. I'm not a trained therapist. I am, I am untrained entirely. All I have is the training of life currently. But that's, you know, that's not... Uh, there is advice I will not dispense because it's just not safe because I'm not, I'm not trained. But what I will always do, if I can't be kind and help people in the right direction, then I will always point them in the direction of those helplines. So your mum made me laugh out loud. Sorry, we're going forwards now instead of backwards, but we are going to go backwards because <laughs> it doesn't matter. We'll just go wherever we need to, whenever we need to. I can't believe you're allowed to have this amount of time. I keep looking at the clock. This is amazing. <laughs> We've got as long as you have, Don't Phil. you ever have to play any music? <laughs> not when you're on. I'm not talking about this. Anybody can press a button. Um, well, actually, some people can't, which is incredible. But anyway, uh, it's not that difficult. Look, there's several. Um, one of the bits that made me cry going forwards is um, after, a couple of weeks after, and you're out and about and you're, you're going out for the first few times in the real world again, you pop to the shops and you buy something and you turn and this little old lady's coming in as you're trying to go out. And uh, she says, oh, it's you. And she grabs you by the arm and you <gasps> sharp and take a breath. What's she going to say? What did she say? It had started, it, the event had happened the day before and it was the first time I went out to the shops it was the first time because immediately after um the telly moment i went home with tony and we would i was just at home with steph and the girls the next day <clears throat> um was a was um was a saturday so uh i knew i had dancing on ice on the sunday and i went out to buy a card for someone and um it was the first time i'd gone out and uh, I walked into the shop and walked up to the counter. And I'm, it was suddenly like I was a different person. Um, and I got to the counter and I bought the card. And the lady looked at me and went, are you okay? And I said, yeah. Yep, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm fine. Um, and she said, "Good. She's good because you know we worry about you." I said, "No, I'm fine. I'm fine." And I walked to the to the door of the shop, and that was that had taken me by surprise. You know that had been an, an a, a, a lovely act of kindness from someone I didn't know. And um, and I got to the door of the shop, and a very elegant lady, uh, sharp, sharply elegant elderly lady, um, was in the doorway of the shop and grabbed my arm. And she said, it's you. And I thought, oh, God, here we go. Uh, I said, yes. 
She said, I can. She looked me right in the eye. And she said, I cannot tell you what a difference you've made. What you did yesterday was so brave. You've saved so many lives. You've saved so many people. I'm so proud of you. In the doorway of a card shop. So what, what happened in the next five or ten minutes after that then? Um, How did that make you feel? Well, it made me feel... It made me feel... Every, every moment is in like an analysis, you know, because you, then I... You know, I'm in the car and I'm analysing what just happened. Like, analysing, analysing, you know, it, it, that, it might be okay. This actually might be all right. To do this might be okay. It's not okay in some areas, you know. Um, Steph is, is, you know, is, a, is, a, is an injured party here, um, obviously. But, you know, the family, we love each other. We, we you know, we, we, we are together. Um, always I said in the book I say you know it's it's us four you know the same but different and so yeah it's, it's analysis and, and, I, and I was after that after that moment in the card shop I was just driving back home and I thought well I wasn't expecting that yeah. well when you did the right thing you know the right things tend to happen don't they mm. this is this is weird you see the thing is that this you and I, you know, we've we've done interviews backwards and forwards over the years, and we talk about telly or we talk about radio, we talk about charity, we talk about we talk. I all I ever do when I'm doing interviews is I will I will sell whatever show I'm doing next, you know, uh, because that's my job and that's what I love. That's what I've always loved, and so all of my interviews have been, you know, about telly and about your job and about your shows this you know for me to do this is so unthinkable that i would be this honest and this open it's it's unthinkable for me to do this i wouldn't ever have imagined that you and i and the country would be having this conversation but it's like a recovering um addict isn't it it's like, it's like 12 steps you know um once you admit to yourself or recognize or whatever verb you want to use that you have an issue, um, you know, it's the beginning of the end of the issue and the beginning of the rest of your life. Mm. And with that comes, you know, not immediate um, uh, uh, lightness, but it certainly feels instantly a whole lot better. It's not as dark. I wouldn't say it was necessarily we'd we'd passed into some sort of lightness yet yet. But it's lighter. Um, it's lighter. That's Definitely what I, that's what lighter. I meant. A lot lighter, um, and and it is in no way as dark as as it has been. So that's well, you can that's breathe good. again for a start. Yeah, yeah, but you know you you're thinking about um, people say uh, constantly now you can live your best life, and it's like well actually I. I thought I was. I, I was actually living my best life. Yeah. Um, so I don't even know what that means. And Charlie Mackesy, has, who, who I admire so much, his illustrations are absolutely beautiful. Um, and uh, he, I, I asked if he would do an illustration for my book. Um, and he said yes, which I, I was thrilled with. And he um, asked for the book and we sent him the you know, sort of pages it wasn't actually you know, a real thing by that stage and um and he sent me back and used my words and it's on the back cover of the of the book um i'm 
and I'm I'm wearing new clothes, but they don't quite fit. And maybe I'll grow into them, and that's how I feel. Well, as I say, that's from the last few pages of the book. I love the last. I love the book, but I, the last few pages such it was, they were so unexpected. What how you talk about how you feel now because it isn't redemption, you know. It isn't. It's relief, but it's not release. You know, it's not celebration. It's anything. It's, it's so far away from celebration, mm. but it's very, very good. It's it's a it's a very good place for you to be compared to where you were. So, I wouldn't want anyone to think that when they went out and they looked at <laughs> looked on the bookshelves or whatever that oh my god, this is a heavy tome. I mean. It's it's the last chapter, which is the you know, well, which the is last, where I had to go. Yeah, the last it's, couple of chapters, it's the last two, but the rest of it we've had a laugh. No, I know, and we'll get onto that. And I promise you, we will, because <laughs> you know, this is not you know misery memoirs by any chance. But um, but the, the last two are really significant because you say that you know you say that at the, at the beginning of chapter fourteen. Um, I might as well read it because you're alluding to it now. You talk about the fact you know. Well, here we are. This is why many of you may have bought the book. I'm paraphrasing, but it's mm. something like that. Hang on a second. I've got I've got the text here. So here we are. Then uh, maybe the only reason you're reading this is because you knew I had to get here eventually. I've seen this part of my story appear over the horizon and get closer and closer as I type. Now we are here. I have no idea how to start. Well, you did a blimming good job in the end. Let me tell you. And as I say, we will talk about the rest of your life because your life is great. So, you know, the thing about about Philip's career is. You know, again, with no real ins, no ins whatsoever. You know, look where he's got to, because he loves telly. He loved telly, still loves telly. And you've had a right laugh on the way. It's the best book about the business I've read, you know, minus chapters 14 and 15. But <laughs> we're not going to finish on 14 and 15 quite yet, if that's okay. all right. Because I think it's important. Okay. Well, it is, of course, it's massively important. So um, let's just let's just play your reaction to when Holly read out uh, the, the your Instagram post um, on that 7th of Feb at uh, just gone 10 o'clock on ITV's This Morning on a Friday morning. We sit here every day mm -hmm. and I'm over there mm -hmm. and some amazingly brave, incredible person is sitting here yeah. and I'm listening to their story and thinking, oh, my God, you're so brave, oh, my God, you're so yeah. brave. And I'm thinking, I have to be that person. Yeah. I have to be that, that person. Because I think all you can be in your life is honest with yourself. Yeah. And I was getting to the point where I knew I wasn't honest with myself. I was getting to the point where I didn't like myself very much because I wasn't being honest with myself. Mm. So when did you know? Oh, I think, as I said, you know, in the, in the book, there's no, you know, no day. Just a, you know, just a... a, a, a life begins to trip you up it just began to my head began to trip me up well that's the sense of it but there, there must have been a moment sorry i didn't mean there must have been i would imagine there would have been a moment a, a, a moment where you go even if it wasn't it wasn't definitive it's was like yeah yeah you know no i think i think it's um i think it's it was it was very gradual and so there isn't a, a moment so, okay well can I put a pin in it then in as much as when did you first, did you discuss it with someone that you might be gay or did you, did you, with the first discussion, I presume it was with Steph, hmm. uh, I, I have something to tell you, I am. I think that, um, I think that conversation was, was, you know, sort of had, had, had at home. Um, and, and when you realise that, you know, something, something is in your head that you, didn't know was there and I I've said you know the the uh, it, it my psychologist said to me um you the human human beings are remarkable in their 
you think it's linear. You think you are linear as a as a person, and that's not the case. We do change. We do. We do. We. You know. You like suddenly. You get older, and you like foods that you didn't like before. You know. Um. I. I'll never like the white of an egg, but nevertheless, it can happen to some people. Um. But but you know. Yes. We 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 change, and uh, and I think I'm I'm was happy to. I'm not someone certainly not happy but I, I, I was I was it was better for me to understand that right so you gave it oxygen and immediately that felt a little bit better than it was the second before you gave this oxygen just talking yeah just talking and so then it comes to Christmas 2019 which I can't believe having read your book it was only a few months ago mm. and this hadn't happened yet and Christmas was, it was the darkest time of all, wasn't it? It should have been the happiest time of all. My mother-in-law, and I've, I've written this in, in the book as well, um, who, my God, my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, John and Jill, they are amazing. My whole family, my God, the reaction from all of them was extraordinary. But just before Christmas, before, uh, oh, during Christmas, um, before I decided that everybody had to know and that it was actually going to trip me up properly, um, I was cleaning. I, I I clean when when I'm stressed. I tidy up, um, uh, and uh, so. What does I, that tell you? Well, when when uh, when when Steph Steph's cooking, when she 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 she'll be she'll be cooking and she'll get her stuff out to cook, and um and she'll go, where's the where's the pan? Oh, it's in the dishwasher. No, I haven't used it yet. And I clear up stuff. And then if I'm really stressed, then that's it. The cupboards in our house are spotless you know the cupboard that's got the it's got bulbs and it's got batteries and it's got old candles and stuff in it it is so neat because i just spent a whole weekend tidying that cupboard you're a hincher i am and so uh so i was cleaning a surface at uh, at christmas and wiping it down and jill uh, my mother-in-law my wonderful mother-in-law said you are the perfect man you know and i, I thought oh my god i said i just said no jill no i'm not um, but it was the sweetest thing to say. Um, so, yeah, big support from them. Big support. And, you know, th that made me smile when her mum said that. Mm. Um, when her dad said what he said in response to you coming out to him, that mm. made me cry, mm. like instantly. Um, uh, he said, I may be your par-in-law, but think of me as your super uh, sur surrogate pa. And long may it continue. Brief today, uh, i.e. no problem. All very military. This yes. is all very captain. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's a big load off my mind. As long as Steph's OK, we don't have a problem. Mm. That's cool. Yeah, it was. That's and cool. he, he, I call him captain, the captain, because he, in his life, he has uh, flown. Um, and he's also um, uh, been the captain on ships. Um, on, 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 on smaller ships, not massive ships, but smaller ships, boats. and uh, Well, boats, in fact, yachts. Uh, and, uh, and so I call him the captain. Um, and, yeah, he is there, is a, there is a military precision to John, uh, which is wonderful. And, um, and that's exactly what he, what he uh, said. Brief today. So all OK. Nothing to worry about. As long as you're yeah. OK, Steph's OK, we're all fine. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's, a very, it's what you want, isn't it? It's so stoic. Well, I couldn't have wanted anything oh. else, really. And um, then you texted back, thank you so much, Captain. I'm so deeply, deeply sorry to disappoint you. And then he replies, nothing to be sorry for here, son, so cheer up. Mm. And that would have helped, I would imagine. Yep. Of course it did. But it's still only Christmas, and we're still a month and a half away from um, the 7th of Feb, and also three months away from blooming COVID. Great, very funny line in the book, when I came out, the world went in. <laughs> very nice, Mr Schofield. <laughs> you must have been happy with that one. Um, so, so, so 
you there's a, the, you allude to it again a lot of nudges that, that get you to where you needed to be in the end thank god but one of them you read a, a, a paper from a man a gentleman mm. who said that he, he he came out you know in the later years of his life as, as opposed to many other people uh, compared to many other people and um he said he didn't really have anything but he had peace mm. and that was that was the that was the key thing you read or heard yeah, I mean, I, I, I started to do a lot of research um, because, uh, you know, I didn't know of anybody like me <laughs> who, um, A, was my age, B, had had the life that I'd had, C, was relatively well-known, um, you know, all of those sort of things. And I just started to do a lot of research. Has there, has there been anyone like me? And so I, you know, quite obviously we're all we're, we're all unique. All our lives are unique, no matter what. And so no, there wasn't anyone who was like me. But I did find a lot of stories from people who, you know, who had had similar experiences. Um, we had a lady on on this morning who who was, and funnily enough, this is this is before you know sort of anything had dawned in my head. And I remember Holly and I were talking about this the other day. And she, I think she was in her 80s. And she said, um, I'm phoning up because I'm going to come out. And, uh, and we went, oh, my God, really? Um, and she said, yes, I, you know, that's, that's, this is it. This is it. I've I, I, I now decided what I'm going to do. This is going to be my life. Um, and we said, that's, that's such a brave thing to do. And so when I'm searching through these papers and these, you know, stories from people, and it was a guy in America, and uh, and he, I think he, he'd been married, but I think he also might have been a, a, a you know, in America, a parson. Um, and so a man, of, a man, of, a religious man. And, uh, and he dropped his particular bombshell and said that he was, he'd found peace. He, he was alone, but he was peaceful. And I thought, well, that story doesn't work for me either. Because I know I'm not alone. I know I'll never be alone because I know I have the most incredible family. And Steph and I, you know, we're, we're, we'll always, always be, you know, linked together with with love. Um, but I thought, well, I like the fact that you found peace and that would be a good thing to have. Um, and, and when I was reading that, there was the, 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 there was a storm raging in my head. And there are moments of peace now in, in, in my head. So that's OK. It's not, not like it was then. But when I read that, I thought, mm, I like the I like the sound of the fact that you found peace. But I don't like the sound of the fact that you've been on your own. Yeah, but being on your own is having no one around you and outside of you. And peace is inside you. And I think that's the difference. Well, I've been lonely in my own head. For yeah. For a, you know, we didn't have yourself really did you i don't know no lost myself so no there was no one in there <laughs> and we also we said this a lot on the show you can't fix the mind with the mind mm. you know that's the mind's that's his favorite trick mm. that's what it likes to pull mm. so i suppose we should go back to um to how it all started <laughs> um so you're born in oldham you moved to cornwall um you uh, end up on the telly but via new zealand mm. uh, what a laugh phil what an absolute giggle well, work has been a laugh. I mean, that work has offered me so many incredible opportunities and brilliant, you know, stories and moments. The times when I've pinched myself and thought, I cannot believe you are here as a kid who grew up in Newquay in Cornwall. And when I decided that I, I wrote to all the DJs, I wrote to everyone and, um, and, and God love them, they all wrote back, you know, in varying ways. 
and um, and all offering advice. Uh, and then I got a job as a bookings clerk at Broadcasting House in London, and I was packing my stuff, and my, one of my mates down there said, why are you going? Why would you leave Cornwall? Everything you want is here. Um, how could you not just be happy with what's here? And I thought, I am, there is a lot here, but I just need something. I need something else. I want to, And I have this strange, you know, sort of love affair with TV and radio. In the early days, it was, it was radio, um, and, and solely radio. Although, mm, that's not true, because I listened to the radio, listened to the Radio 1 Roadshow came to, came to Fistral Beach once a year, um, and I was there at 5 o'clock in the morning when they were setting it up. And, uh, and so that was, obviously, that radio was fascinating. But at the same time, if I saw TV cameras, uh, there's, an, there's a TV camera, the white ones, on the, uh, it's got uh, BBC TV colour on it, and there are EMI 2001s. If I ever saw those cameras dancing, <laughs> dancing across the floor of either Top of the Pops or you know, whatever. World. Tomorrow's World. Swap Show. Uh, James Burke did a science yeah. show. They were always yeah. in shot there, and I love them so the much. The Grand National. I bought one. I've got Do you one. You know, I knew you would have done it. I was going to ask you that, but I thought I'd basically gone anyway. I've got, I actually found a guy. Yeah. He gave me all the kit to, to make it work, but, uh, but I'm terrified to ever do that because I I think it'll burn the house down but it looks beautiful there's a picture of it in the book and it is the most stunning piece of kit they are gorgeous yeah i mean they're, they're so ridiculously big it's massive <laughs> that's why tv center was so big just to fit the, <laughs> fit cameras, the cameras in that's all it was that's why they now made it smaller and it still works fine it's all it's all complete well the ridiculous thing and and the the the, the actual twisting path mm. of television center and, and and how that has played in my life right hold that thought Okay, because I'm okay. going to give you a break now. Okay. Okay, and we're going to pick up after the show, and we're going to do, uh, we're going to chat again for, right. the, for the podcast. If that's all right. Yeah, of course. And that is a great trail <laughs> <laughs> because that is so cool. It's so cool. Your life is so cool. It's a real pleasure to know you, Philip Schofield. All uh, right, you go and have a cup of tea. All right, and uh, another another comfort break because we're of an age, and uh, <laughs> and I'm going to talk some rock and roll to Adam Clayton if that's all right. Superb. So, as we were saying, uh, born in Oldham, uh, fled to Cornwall when you were 18 months. <laughs> How'd you do that? And um, then a bit of New Zealand in between and then back to Cornwall and then uh, London. And um, let's start, Philip. Um, born in Oldham, how come? <laughs> um, I, uh, the whole family are, uh, are up in, uh, up in uh, Oldham, around that area. Um, my mum and dad went on their honeymoon to Newquay and just fell in love with the place and then eventually had me or well, at 18 months they moved down there and my dad was sort of looking for work he got a job um making surfboards uh and he worked for what was called grandly the european surfing company but in uh, then it was bilbo and he made surfboards and one of his proudest moments was going to Hawaii he went on holiday to Hawaii with my mum and one of his surfboards was in the surfboard museum the, the sort of museum of celebrating the art of surfing and and so he was thrilled with that and so uh, so yeah that's that's why I that's how I ended up moving from from there to there so much to ask you about Cornwall. Um, it's not really about Cornwall, this conversation. But um, first of all, I really want to move to Cornwall. But my wife, my wife's having none of it. Can you have a word? Yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, I've got many, many reasons to convince her for that. That's she, just she's perfect. Just, she just says it's cold and it's windy and it's craggy. She, she, likes, she likes it on a nice day. 
Well, the South Coast is, um, is there are parts of the South Coast which are positive, positively, you know, sort of subtropical down there. This Lovely. is what you need. This is what she needs to hear. Yeah. And, yeah. and would you move near to us? Because that would help as well. Yes, of course. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, no problem at all. <laughs> you, you had a really doody childhood, didn't you? I mean, you know, the fact your dad made surfboards for a start <clears> and you, you always had a VW van of some sort around as well. Just give us, give us, a, give us a, a few minutes on that. Well, life down in Cornwall was idyllic we had a big guest house um uh, eventually and and uh, we had six bedrooms in the guest house and in the summer we'd take in visitors and i waited on the tables and the reason i love my toast cold well done and rubbery is because i used to nick the toast off the tables when i cleared after the guests had all gone out for their days and i used to clear up the tables and eat their cold toast so the only way i can eat my toast now um the beach was just down the road. We were on Pentire, which is a headland, and uh, you've got the Gannel Estuary on the left-hand side, and then you've got Fistral Beach, this unbelievable... It's about a mile of, of sand. And um, at the at the end of the uh, Fistral Beach, the roadshow used to come down every year, so that, you know, I had that as well. I start the book um, in, a, in an ice cream kiosk, um, and, uh, and so it was that sort of... That sort of life. What you what I, what we did down there was you'd make as much money as you possibly could for your from your summer jobs, which would get you through the winter. And so, m me and all my friends, you realise you're working in a shop, or I'm in a kiosk, or I'm doing all of these things. I'm missing out on the whole summer holidays because I'm working indoors. I thought there's got to be something I can do that plays to the things that I enjoy and I like, and also earns me more money. I thought I'm going to get a disco, so I saved up all of my money, and I uh, and I bought uh, Hawaii Citronic decks from Bristol, um, and my dad bought the composite parts of the speakers, and then built my speakers for me. He then got me my first gig without me knowing in a local hotel, and came back, and he said, "I've been thinking about you know what I was going to call it, all the cool names I was going to call it," and uh, and he came back and said, uh, "I've got you a job." I said, oh, my God, what? He said, yeah, yeah, first uh, first disco. Oh, that's amazing. That's fantastic. He said, yeah, I had to come up with a name really quickly um, because uh, then you want to put it in the, uh, in, the, in the little circular. Right, okay. W well, what's it called? He said, you're the Galaxy Disco. And I said, that's bloody chocolate. Um, you can't, you can't. He said, well, it's too late now. So I was the Galaxy Disco. Um, and he, uh, he then made me a light box with the word Galaxy on it, which I still have now. No, you do not. I do. Wow. Yep, yep, yep. I've got that. Is that your rosebud? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and in the, when I wasn't, um, out at hotels and things doing discos, mm. um, we set in the wintertime, I set up the turntables uh, and all my records and the headphones in the dining room because there were no guests at that stage. And um, I had my own radio station and I broadcast, I, I, I did radio shows nonstop just to myself because I'd got two decks, so I, you know, the whole thing. Um, so I, I used to do endless radio shows, um, which was obviously, you know, was was good grounding. Did you shake all the cans of Coke in the kiosk? <laughs> no, only the ones I can. So when I, when I, I don't know why, is it weird what goes through your head, isn't it? Because I'd written the first line of that book. I knew what I want, how I wanted to start the book when I was about 14 or 15, when I was doing what I was doing. And I knew the first word had to be Coke. 
And um, and so it was so lovely to be able to get the opportunity to write the book and to be able to do that. And and the publishers, who I absolutely adore, Michael Joseph, are the kindest, sweetest, not just for me, but for Steph as well, the kindest, sweetest, sweetest people, said, you know, about the beginning of the book, um, you know, is that the way you want it to start? Because, you know, you, you really do need to sort of set up where we're going to go here. So I said, I'll write you a, uh, a prologue, but you can't change the first chapter because those have to be the first words. It's beautiful as well. For people who don't know what we're talking about, just explain what this right, So uh, I'm uh, at the bottom of the steps uh, on uh, the, uh, the Pentire end of Fistral Beach uh, in the ice cream kiosk. And um, there's something about tourists in a place like Newquay that they tend to forget how to be nice to the locals. Um, and uh, um, we used to call them Emmets. Little do they know. Em- Emmets. Uh, 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 they're, they're grockles in Devon, Devon and Emmets in, in Cornwall. And Emmet, there's an Emmet fly that is only around in the summertime. And, uh, and so, they, uh, so the locals all call tourists Emmets, uh, which I don't put in the book. And um, so I'm in the kiosk and, uh, and I, every morning I would go down and I would, and sometimes it wasn't used and sometimes it was, and I would bang before anyone else came. Bang a can of coke, and they were much more explosive in those days. Um, <laughs> ten times on the wooden floor of the kiosk, and then put it to one side. And then when someone came up that was rude and asked for a coke, um, then that's the one they got. And so this guy, this guy was bright red and peeling, and just came up and just went coke. And I waited for a second to see whether he said please, and he didn't. Um, and I say in the book, that's it, game on. And uh, and any would you like anything else? Crisps. What sort of flavour crisps would you like? Plain. Okay. Uh, where he goes? Da, 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 da. Get that. Put the can of coke on the table and all that sort of stuff. Away he goes. And uh, you, I knew I was going to lose sight of him because he's going to go through the windbreakers and uh, and you don't you know don't see exactly where he is. But I just serve everyone else and keep a cor- the eye out the corner of my uh, you know uh, eye out the corner of my eye <laughs> something like that. Um, and uh, and so I'd keep an eye on the beach, and then. About three or four minutes later, you'd see this. It was like someone had struck oil uh, from somewhere around. It could be behind the rocks. You'd struck gold. <laughs> and up it would go again, about eight foot in the air, an entire can of Coke. And then uh, and then I knew they'd be back. I knew we'd come back. I knew they'd be cross. I knew they'd be surrounded in wasps. And, um, and oh, I'm so sorry, of course. I don't know what happened to that. Did you shake it on the way back to your towel? So, yeah, that's how the book starts. And wasps get about three mentions in the first few Because I'm allergic. I'm allergic to wasps things. I, uh, it's a myth that as you uh, each time you get stung, it gets worse. That's that's a myth. It can it can affect you either way. And I've had some that have been quite mild, and I've had some that have been quite scary. Um, uh, so I've got an EpiPen, which I never keep with me. It's in the bathroom cabinet. At the that's moment. that's yeah, sensible. So, yeah, I know. Uh, so I should have it with me. Where am I going to put? Yeah, come in to see you. I've brought my phone. That's all I brought. I brought my phone and an EpiPen. So, um, so yeah, so I'm allergic to um, uh, anything that stings, okay. uh, bees and stuff. And the, then you ascended to um, Candy Floss Maker. <laughs> Which I was really crap at. See, how can you be crap at making Candy Floss? It just looks so easy. No, 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 no. There are certain days of the year, and it was on my day for auditioning for that particular job, uh, Arthur, who was the local guy, said... Uh, he said, "All you got to do," he said, uh, "you put the uh, put the pink and the sugar in the middle, and uh, and uh, and then uh, you put the spinner on, and you just hoop it over around around the outside." All right. So I said, "I'm going off for lunch." I said, "I'll leave you uh, for a, an hour or so with this." Okay, fine. And so, uh, it, on certain days, if it's very humid, 
the candy floss doesn't stick to the side of the tub. It just hovers there in a in a pink hoop. Candy and floss makers woe. If it's windy, then the wind will whip up the hoop that's hovering and blow it at you. And he came back after an hour, and I don't think I managed to get a single one out of the tub really? for the people that were there. I was literally covered in in pink sugar. It was between my toes. I couldn't open my eyes properly mm. um, and surrounded by wasps, which was a dangerous position yeah. to be. And he fired me on the spot. See, from a consumer point of view, I was very rebellious uh, when it came to candy floss. When people started to put it in bags. Yes. Get, what was that about? Well, um, yes, I know. It's uh, got to be on the stick. You've got to earn it. It's a fairground thing, that, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so you get the, because they can just oh. hook, hook them off. It's all right for the goldfish, but not for the candy floss. It's like fast food. It's like, it's, it's far, fast sugar. Far, in a bag, with in people? a bag, you. Crazy. Uh, so you ended up in New Zealand because of your dad again? Yeah, my dad had always wanted to go to New Zealand. And uh, I, by this stage, I had left Cornwall. I was uh, 17. I was the youngest person to be working in Broadcasting House. I was in the Sport and Outside Broadcasts bookings department. Uh, I was getting to know all the DJs because they because all the studios were at the end of uh, at the end of the corridor, the first floor that I was on. Um, so on nodding terms and thinking this is actually quite good, you know, I'm getting to know people here, beginning to make contacts. For what I don't know, you know. So eventually, hopefully, my mum my mum said once, "Well, you get friendly with them all because you never know. You might be near a studio and someone might suddenly be taken sick, and then you know you can jump in and do their show." It's not quite the way it works like that, Mum. But but yeah, okay. And so um, so I'm in broadcasting house, and uh, I have um, I've got. Where, where, what was your question? No, you, so you, you go to New Zealand. So so oh, yeah. you, But you're 17 first, right? So my dad, yeah. So that so that's the thing. My dad, um, they phoned up one day. Uh, I've been two years in London. I was then loving it. Suddenly, really enjoying it made great friends. I was in a little tiny bedsit and all our bedsits were too small for for us to have any guests in really. Nobody so, cared, did they? No, we all had we had stair parties. Um and so um my dad phoned up and said, "You know I've always wanted to go to New Zealand." So I said, "Yeah." He said, "Well, I, we're going to go. We're going to go." And I went, "Oh my god, like what a holiday." Uh, and he said, "No, we're going to live." Oh, and the the shock was so huge because I adore as well you'll see in, in, in the book is I adore my family um, but the thought of being without them 12,000 miles was ridiculous but also at the same time I was just beginning to make headway um, one of my best mates now is the radio DJ Peter Powell and Pete um, was so kind and so lovely and generous with the uh, advice um, and I just got, you know, he'd let me go in and watch his show a couple of times. And I thought, oh, my God, this is amazing. Uh, and then I'm asked, you know, do you want to come to New Zealand? And I had, to, I knew I had to go. Why, why did you have to go? Just because of the fact? I couldn't have been separated from them. Good for you. Good for you. I mean, that's a big deal. Cause oh, you, it's you, massive. You, you had more than a foot in the door at yeah, the time. I did then, yeah. yeah. And, you, and you, this is all trailblazing. You know, you, you, you didn't know anybody in the business, did you? There was no, no family connections. In this, New Zealand? No, just generally. No. You, no, you know, no, no, not at all. The Only the ones time. that I was beginning to make myself. We only, when, we, when we went to New Zealand, um, we lived there for four years. Um, when we landed in Auckland... We had one sort of distant friend of a family member who came to pick us up. He was the only person we knew in the whole country. 
um, and we started from scratch. Again? Yeah. From your point of view. I mean, you know, to break down the walls of, of this industry, it's not impossible, by the way, and it's no, no heroic task, but it's not easy. Uh, and for you to, to do that here and then have to... St- oh, no, really? Mm. And then you've got to go again there. It's even, it's even less easy because you're not a Kiwi. You know, there's less opportunities, I would imagine. I've not been, to be honest. Um, but, um, but I think this what's interesting as far as this particular, you know, uh, our how to wow bit of the podcast is concerned. You know, I think everybody I've met, you know, and I've met loads of people now, as you, as you have, from our side of the microphone, our side of the camera, they just were never going to take no for an answer. So mm. you go again in New Zealand. How did you go again in New Zealand? I was um, desperate to be on the radio. And so I went to all the radio stations, and there were quite a few in Auckland at the time, sort of six, seven, eight of them. About three that I really loved. There was uh, Radio Haraki, which was the the one that I really wanted to be on. There was one ZM, um, which was a, a, another one, great music. And so I went to all of those, and they uh, had and had a play uh, on the decks, and you know, sort of had people listening on the other side. And they said, "Yeah, no, we like we like what you're doing. Trouble is, uh, your accent's a bit English." So, and I went, "Oh, because I'm English." <laughs> so they said, "No, I don't. You know, that's that's a bit of an issue." And I didn't get. I did. I thought, "Oh, I never even thought about that." So I didn't get any jobs because I was too English, and I, so I was really struggling. And I thought, "Oh, and I, you know, I'm going to have to come back." My mum and dad built a swimming pool in the garden to try and make me stay, uh, which worked for a summer. And uh, and then, you know, it got to winter again. I'm thinking about going. And our next door neighbour, who was called Doreen, Doreen Schofield, the Schofields lived next, lived next door to us. And uh, she came over and said, there's an uh, article in the Auckland Star um, about uh, they're looking for a magazine host, a teenage music show host, a programme called Shazam. And, uh, and I said, oh, right, OK, fine, thank you. Uh, and I didn't pick it up. And my later on that evening when everyone was home, um, my mum told my dad. And my dad said, well, where is it? Let me have a look. So he had a look. He said, well, why didn't you go to the audition? Just phone them up and get an audition. I said, I don't want to work in television. And he went, yeah, but it just get you out of the house. It's something to do. Just go out. So I phoned up and got the audition and went down to uh, to the studios in Auckland and um, and got the job. And I ended up on the telly completely by accident. And I'd lied on the CV. It said that I'd, I'd done radio shows at, uh, at the BBC. Well, I, I had, but I'd recorded radio shows at the BBC and sent them to Hospital Radio Plymouth, which was where I had any experience. I'd lied about everything. Um, and so when they get, get I me, mean, Peter Gratton, who was the producer, called me into the office a couple of days later. I was told that I got the job and I thought, I'm going to have to come clean here. And I said, I pretty much lied about everything on, on there. There's, I don't have that much experience at all. He went, no, I, your audition was amazing. It was just what we wanted. He said, you nearly didn't get the job because you were too old. I went, oh, no, I lied about that as well. So he said, how old are you? So I said, I'm 19. He went, yeah, you definitely got the job. I thought I was 23, and he thought, mm, I might be too old. So I nearly lied my way out of the job. The wrong way around. Yeah. So, so the normal show is Absolutely. age lie. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. And what did you do that was so impressive at the audition? Well, I wasn't scared because I just went for a laugh. Right. So I sat down in the in a TV studio, and they were taking it very seriously. And um, and I'd seen Philip Sherry, who was their New Zealand's like top newsreader in the reception area. And I thought, well, that's quite interesting. Um, and then went into the into the studio, um, and they uh, I introduced a few music clips. One of the crew sat in a chair, and I had to interview. 
the crew but pretend it was someone i think it was smoky robinson i think i turned him into someone that i was wanted to interview so i interviewed smoky robinson and um how was smoky that he day? was very interesting yeah very interesting <laughs> Uh, and then, and that was it. And, I, and the reason I think, the reason I got it, all of the all of the the people I'd written to, all of the DJs when I was in Cornwall, I'd written to all the radio DJs, and they'd all written about Annie Nightingale and Noel Evans and Peter Powell, and uh, there was a great load list of them. Um, and they all said, just you know, be yourself. Make sure you are or never address the world at large. Don't say how are you all today. And it's so old school. And it really annoys me when people do it on the telly or on the radio. How are you all? No, 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 no. It's just me. Not, there's no all. It's just me. So all of those things had all sunk in. Um, and 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 I think that the reason I I got the job was because I wasn't that bothered. I wanted to work on the radio, and the telly was just a night out. So, so it was okay. That was good. Yeah. What got, was the pay like? Got the gig. Oh, dreadful. No, really, very poor. Um, it, it was enough money for me to buy uh, my first car, um, which was a Sunbeam Rapier. Um, so, uh, so I loved that. Loved that car. Um, and then I bought a Hillman Hunter um, after that. Uh, and <laughs> but then you'll then now you won't be so impressed because because they were really old and they kept you know kept going wrong. Yeah. So I bought a Honda Civic. So yeah, sorry. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, okay, moving on. <laughs> By the way, I just watched the interest <laughs> drop off your face. Then yeah. two good cars and then the, the Civic. Yeah. Right. So were you a bit famous in New Zealand then? Eventually, yeah. Yeah. So so to what level? To what extent? On the show, on the telly, every week, and uh, on the radio. Were you because... nationally famous? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so had, had you practiced your autograph by this time? Yeah, I had. Well, the weird, <laughs> the weird thing was, um, I did the first Shazam. We went up to the <laughs> studio. Great in, name, by in, the way. Yeah, the first, uh, first, studio, went up to do the first show in uh, in Shortland Street, which is where the studios were, and um, and then went in a couple of days later to, to talk about the next week's show, and Evelyn, who was our PA, um, said, um, "Oh, she said you might want to have a look through that lot over there." Uh, and I looked and there was a big sack of, of letters. And I said, well, what is it? So she said, it's your mail. What do you mean, my mail? She said, it's your f- fan mail. What? And it's, and I, I, the last thing I ever imagined, I, all I wanted to do was to be on the radio or on the telly. I didn't think that anyone would be bothered about the fact that I was yeah. or that I'd get anyone writing in. And so they, I got this bag full of fan mail. And that's why when people ask me now, you know, I want to get into TV, I want to get into radio, uh, I, I, I want to know why. Because if you want to get in because you want to be famous, I'm not interested. Yeah. But if you want to get in because of the love of communication, then, yeah. then I am interested. OK, so what turned you onto that when you were a, a consumer of it, when you were little? Uh, I, it, was, it was radio. It was the fact that, that people were painting pictures that, and, I, and, and they were doing it with their voices. And Who did uh, you like? Uh, Annie Nightingale on the Sunday. I very loved Annie's show. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, she's got the same birthday as me. And, and me. Uh, yeah, of course, we, we have too, yeah. <laughs> and my mate Charlie. Hi, yeah. Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> so Annie was definitely someone. She had a, a, a brilliant Sunday radio show. Um, I used to listen to Radio Luxembourg. Uh, and the great uh, 208 yeah and listen to the listen to the um uh, the, the the signal wash in and wash out yeah. like the tide um and it was that the thing maybe luxembourg it was the romance of, of a station broadcasting from you know from uh, the grand duchy yeah <laughs> uh that i and i i stayed awake to listen to the close down the 
the Luxembourg national anthem, and uh, and their closing song was Maybe the Morning, sung by Sonny. And another radio presenter hauled me up on this the other day and said, "You made a mistake in your book." And I said, "No, I haven't." So they said, "You've uh, um, you've you've said that um, maybe the morning at the end of radio, when Radio Luxembourg closed down was sung by Sonny." I said it was. I said, no, no, it was Marion Montgom- uh, Mary Montgomery. Mon- Montgomery. And, uh, and I said, no, it was sung by her, but not on Luxembourg. Uh, I said, play both of them side by side. And they did. You saddos. I know, they did. <laughs> but at least you won. And I won. It's <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Fun to, for, do you, a friend of yours, I'm presuming. Uh, it, was, it was another interview that I was doing. But not a friend of yours. Uh, it was Moyles. Was it Moyles? Yeah. He's picking you up on that. <laughs> what a loser. Is that the best that you had from this amazing book? Well, made see. me laugh. Very, radio geeks together, you see. <laughs> it was another DJ. Who? Moyles. Um, <laughs> moving on. Uh, hello, Christopher. Uh, so so then Dad, Dad's unwell. Um, uh. You save his life uh, by, by performing CPR, which you didn't know how to do. My dad uh, was, in his younger days, was a brilliant footballer. We had, um, he was never professional, um, but he used to play a lot. Um, and we've got newspaper cuttings that said Schofield scores seven. Uh, so he was a really good footballer, very fit. Um, and then, and, he, and the only rouse we ever had was if I said I was bored. There's always something you can do. You, you know, don't sit on your ass. You get up, do something. And so... Uh, he went out to his um, night school, and he was he was an art class because he was constantly doing stuff. And he came back from uh, we didn't hear the car, and we were just so that happens because by this stage I am on the telly and I'm busy, uh, and social life is great. And um, and so I happened to be home that night with my brother and my mum, and we were watching the telly, and the door opened, and I hadn't heard his car. And he said, "I've locked my keys in the car down at the night school." So I said, "Oh right, okay. Well, so I'll run you down." And uh, and we'll we'll take your spare set. And he went in to the kitchen and got a glass of water, which was really unlike him. And then sat down in his chair. And then proceeded to have the most spectacular heart attack. Um, and was dead. Um, uh, and I hauled him off the his chair, dragged him to the ground. My brother called the ambulance. My mum ran next door. And I'm looking at him, thinking, right, okay, well, you know, you have to do something. And I started to do compressions and it wasn't working and nothing was happening. And so I just put my hand on his chest and wheeled my right arm over the top of my head and slammed it onto my hand on his chest over and over and over. And he made a noise Um, by which stage and I'm doing mouth to mouth and this sort of hammering motion. And uh, by which stage the ambulance men arrived and they came in through the door and said, well, you're not doing it right, but it seems to be working. Hold on a second. Did the, you know, sort of clear paddles, you know, zapped him and he and it brought him back. And I got a little certificate which said tonight you saved your dad's life. Um, And uh, he went to hospital, had um, quadruple heart bypass. But when he came round... Um, just before the operation, because they obviously sedated him to check that he was all right, but he came around and we all went in. And uh, and he said, uh, I said, well, we said, how are you? And he went, oh, my God, he said, my chest is so bloody sore. And it wasn't the fact that he'd had a heart attack. It was the fact that I'd battered him. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, it, once he'd recovered from that, we all decided that we were a long way away from home and that um, I had, you know, I'd... I'd had four years and I was now famous in New Zealand 
And I had to give it up again because we all decided we were going to come home. I love these familial decisions that you make. I mean, that's very cool, isn't it? It is, but um, I uh, talk a lot in the book about loops. Um, I have I have uh, these thought loops that go round and round and round in my head. Um, not for a decision to do a TV show or, or, or a radio show. I mean, a, a format comes through and I'll instantly know, oh, I'm, I like that, that could work. So uh, I don't anguish over career moves. It's life moves that I anguish over. The loops started in my bed sit in St. John's Wood when my dad phoned me and said, we're going to go to New Zealand. Do I go? Do I stay? Do I go? Do I stay? Round and round and round and round and round and round and round. And also happened in New Zealand when they said, we're going to come back. Round and round and round and round. I've got everything here. I'm now, I'm, I'm, I'm big in New Zealand. You know, I've got, I've got my own radio show because the radio came through and said, now you're on the telly, you can be on the radio. Yeah. So now I've got a radio show. I'm on the radio. I'm on telly. You know, I'm, I'm famous down under. And, uh, and so uh, what the hell? And now I've got to give it up. And so I said, yeah, OK. So we all came back and I, I, I gave it all up uh, and started completely from scratch in, in town again. So you say completely from scratch, but you now had a bit of previous on your CV. Well, I'd got previous and Peter, who I mentioned earlier on, Peter Powell, the Radio 1 DJ, had started up a management company then with his partner, Russ Lindsay, called James Grant. And, uh, and I'm now in New Zealand. As before I left Broadcasting House... Um, I, as I said, I got to know Pete and I'd watched his shows and he said, keep in touch. He says he can remember saying that. I know he can't, but he said, keep in touch. So when I got to New Zealand, I'm on the telly, on the radio. I'm sending back VHSs uh, and cassettes wrapped in tin foil because I was scared that they'd get wiped as they went through uh, airport security. So back in London at this fledgling management company with Pete and Russ, these packages, these tinfoil packages would arrive and Russ would shout to Pete, uh, the New Zealand lunch has arrived again. And uh, Pete, uh, Pete opened them up and had a listen and hadn't watched me on the By telly. Way, I'm loving this. <laughs> Um, and uh, and he uh, and he thought actually this guy's not that bad. It's uh, what he's doing is okay. And by this stage in New Zealand, I'm hosting big awards ceremonies. We've got a big battle of the bands going on, all sorts of stuff. And um, and so I leave New Zealand and come back. And the first thing I do when I come back is go and see Pete um, because he said keep in touch, and I had. Uh, so he said, "Yeah, no. As soon as you're here, come and come and uh, come and have a chat." And I went in, and in an incredibly selfless act, um, he was doing the the very early Sky was doing a thing called Sky Tracks, and Sky Tracks was a music show, and um, and he was Pete was a host on on the music show, and he did you know, did them weekly, and he said, "I'm going to take a holiday, but I'm going to suggest that you do my fill in, so you can be my my sub." So he took a took two weeks holiday so that I could go in and fill in for him on Skytrax, uh, which I did, and I did the show, and they didn't like me. So that was pointless, <laughs> utterly pointless. So now I'm thinking I've made a terrible mistake because I've come I've come all the way over and there's nothing happening. There was a show called No Limits was about to start, and Pete and Russ, by which they they'd taken me on. So I was now uh, there was there was me and a guy called Owen Paul. Owen Paul released my favourite waste of time and got to number three with that. Um, and so he was the first in to James Grant. I was second in. Um, and so uh, No Limits was uh, was starting in Manchester. 
Uh, and it, I think they were rebooting the show. It had been on before, but they were rebooting it. And so Russ said, we need to send your tape, your your um, your New Zealand thing to, to Manchester, which I sent it. And, and I got rejected. Uh, but the tape came back from London. And I thought, that's strange. And I sent it to Manchester, got turned down. Turns, it turns out I didn't get no limits because I wasn't blonde. Um, and they wanted two blonde hosts. Uh, so that's why I didn't get that job. But why did the thing come back from London? And what had been happening was children's ITV had been doing the kids stuff in the afternoons, recorded, but it was beginning to dent the BBC's kids stuff in the afternoons. And the BBC decided that we'll, we're going to do this for the first time ever. We're going to put someone in vision continuity, um, but we're going to do it live. And so let's find someone. And the guy who was in charge of that was a bloke called Pat Hubbard. And Pat thought, well, and, they, and the BBC wanted it quickly. And Pat thought, uh, well, I haven't got time to hold auditions. So let, who was the who was the last show that auditioned anyone? And who were their rejects? And so he found out it was No Limits, said to um, Manchester, have you got any? And they went, yeah, this guy's quite interesting. We didn't go with him, but you might, you might quite like this bloke. And that's how the tape would come back from London. Pat watched it, phoned up. Could I go in and do an audition? Which I did. Um... And uh, and that's how the broom cupboard started. But had Skytrax worked out, a whole different path. Exactly. Had Skytrax worked out, there'd be no Gordon the Gopher. Yeah. Well, there'd be there'd be no here and now. We wouldn't be having this conversation. No. I, well, we might have been, but I don't know how you'd have got here. Uh, uh, I'd have, I'd have got here. But I was talking to Emma Thompson about this yesterday. So not about that, by the way. Not about your career. <laughs> uh, but um, <laughs> bless you for that. I'm sure she'd be very enthusiastic about it. But she wrote this show. She was she started in Tutti Fruit, another show which she won a BAFTA for, and then she wrote a show, um, a comedy show, which was very female um, uh, confident, very female led. It was about about the way that women were being treated in the world. She did lots of uh, medieval sketches uh, where women started to discover things that later on men got the credit for. It was very very funny, but the critics hated it. And it was panned, and uh, they got very personal with her about it, and it was very hurtful. But and she said it was only shown in America at three o'clock in the morning, things like that. But somebody was watching it, and because she could write in this sort of old medieval prose, they were looking for somebody to adapt *Sense and Sensibility*. Oh. And that she got that gig, and she won an Oscar for it. So they, it's the same thing, isn't, isn't it? Weird. You just crack on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. I and you that. just never know what the twists and turns are are going to be because. It was the fact that I was doing um, the kids stuff in the afternoons. I had a very close shave with uh, with Billy Baxter and Blue Peter, who tried to tried to get me on the show. Um, but I'd always got I'd got my eyes set on Saturday mornings, and uh, and so Chris Bellinger was the guy who'd started off Multicolor Swap Shop with Noel, um, and that's where I wanted to go. All legends, aren't they? Chris Bellinger, Biddy Baxter, yeah. all those guys, Pat Hubbard. Uh, for, in our business, anyway, the um, the the Biddy Baxter lunch killer. <laughs> look, 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 look! See, there it is. It's like whoa. Page folded over. Lots of lines highlighted here. I went st straight for this because we're cut from the same cloth. It's like just look, look at the goosebumps on my arms. Oh. Just tell everybody because we've got to talk about this. Tell everybody who Biddy Baxter was and and. Why she sort of she 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 duly um, deserved such renown. Biddy Baxter was a legend in children's television, um, and she had started Blue Peter, uh, and then worked her way through the ranks and became the editor of Blue Peter. A formidable woman, 
who knew exactly what she wanted. Um, and uh, and she, uh, she had, um, apparently, she'd sit in the, in the gallery and if a presenter was looking at the wrong camera, she would take her shoe off and bang the monitor and say, over here, you stupid woman. So she was very, very, um, she had all the office desks lined up looking at her. Um, uh, she uh, had made sure, she'd written to Enid Blyton, and Enid Blyton had written back, and then she wrote to Enid Blyton again and got the same letter. And she thought at that moment, if ever I'm in a position that children write to me, I'm going to set up a catalogue system so I know that they don't get the same letter twice. And that's exactly what she did. Now, you've, if you were a kid and you wrote to Blue Peter, they would cross-reference, they'd go and they'd say, oh, yeah, the third letter. Thank you so much for writing to us again. da 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 da, da. You always got a personalised um, response. And that was all down to Biddy Baxter. She was formidable and she was after me. She wanted me on Blue Peter and I didn't want to do it. Yeah, and you were rocking the broom cupboard and we all absolutely loved it because the broom cupboard was very rock and roll. We'll talk about that more in a moment because we can't not. Uh, and, you know, I can see, I could, I could have seen then, but I can certainly see now. Why you you wouldn't want to go to Blue Peter from this new punk, pre, you know, on air presentation thing you created, which was so original mm. because it was original. You can't qualify original. It wasn't so original. It was just original. So she takes you out for lunch. She can't believe that you don't want to work for her. And um, they're at this lunch, uh, everyone. And um, she says, she says, you know, I can tell you want you do want this job. No, I don't. I don't want the job. No, but I could look, Philip. I can tell you do. You just, you just don't know that you do. Um, she asked why I was resisting because I don't want to do it. I said. She said my destiny was to do Blue Peter. I told her it wasn't to do Blue Peter. I said I wanted Saturday mornings. And she told me that my ambition was frivolous. Come to work with me. Thank you, but nobody. I know you want to. No, I don't. You have to. I don't. You'll regret it. I won't. Brilliant prose. Uh, we left the restaurant and the pressure all the way back in the taxi was relentless. Nobody. You can't make me. I won't do it. Absolutely not. As we got out of the cab, she continued, I will change your mind. You absolutely will not. I walked back to the office, flattered but battered. <laughs> yes! Cool! But then I got a call the next day from Roy Thompson, who was the assistant head of children's programmes, who said, how did lunch go with Biddy yesterday? She seemed to think you'd left it quite open. <laughs> yeah, because that to her was still open. She would not give I up. I know, I know. And she formatted that amazing audition process, didn't she, about the bouncing up on trampolines? Do you want to tell tell people about I, that? I never went through that, so it was only so I mean, it's a it's a it's a vague recollection. That oh, one. The, the the audition process for for Blue Peter was famous. Just to get to do it was like yeah, that is like winning half the lottery. Um, so Gordon the Gopher. So so the broom cupboard was an actual broom cupboard. Uh, we'll talk about Holly and you and that that beautiful uh, <laughs> uh, tour that you gave her when this morning had to to decamp or, or be decanted from uh, television London studios uh, to, um, to back to TV centre in a moment or two. Gordon the Gopher, where did he come from? Um, um, how did he change depending on whose uh, hand was stuck up his arse, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I went down to, uh, to Cornwall because my whole family were down in Cornwall and uh, we went over to see my auntie, my mum's sister, who was um, very cool, very funny and uh, she she was the one that would break the rules with me, and we were terrible gigglers. And um, and so we went round. She, we exchanged Christmas presents, and she said, "Oh, I've forgotten one." She said, "I've got a, I've got another one for you." And uh, she had been to some market somewhere, 
And I opened up this present and inside was this sort of golden hand puppet thing with very long arms that you put around your um, neck and long legs that you wrapped around your waist. So it looked like it was hugging on to you. They were velcroed, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. and it looked like it was hugging on to you. And it squeaked. (laughs) I had quite a cute cute face. And I said, oh, that's uh, ha ha ha. And we played with it for a couple of seconds and I put it down and that was that. Because it was Christmas, I then had to go back to come back up to London because I was ho- I was on the in the broom cupboard in from Boxing Day, the day after Boxing Day, up until New Year's Eve. So there's this sort of dead time in between Christmas and New Year, and uh, and I thought, what do we? What can we do? What can we do? And I brought the brought the puppet into work, um, and uh, there was a guy who was um, called Tim Tim Robbins, who was the producer at the time. And I gave him this puppet and said, "Does it do anything with that?" And I used it. I used it a couple of times. And he said, uh, "Because of the continuity desk was a working desk, you had to actually on some things you had to use your hands." So, uh, so he said, "Give the puppet to me." He said, and "I'll I'll do it, and you can you know do your job." And so we're doing the links, and he knocked over a cup of tea, which spilled in my lap live on the telly, um, which sudden and, and this thing beca- got a life of its own. And so eventually we, uh, we we chopped its arms down, chopped its legs down because you'd for copyright and all that sort of stuff. Um, and 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 it, it it was born. People got were really quite upset that it didn't have any clothes on, so they sent in clothes. And then the record companies thought, well, Philip might not wear our promotional T-shirts, but the Gopher will, because he was a he was a promo tart. So yeah, Gopher the Gopher for hire. was wearing, you know, had home like beautifully made. Tapau t-shirts um adam ant was a fan of the gopher and his record company made the most incredible perfect little leather jacket for him with adam ant written on the back of it and so um the gopher became you know really terribly terribly famous so much so that it just won't go away no and by the way but that because that was your world i mean you work on great tv shows now and you're brilliant on the telly thank god you're on the telly with your, your pals but that was your world wasn't it i mean that was your wayne's world yes it was yeah you definitely know. definitely and and then the gopher paid for half your house how did that work out well i i thought that maybe there's some marketing thing in this and i phoned up uh, bbc marketing and spoke to a guy there and said, um, I'm on the telly in the afternoons. Um, I've got this puppet called uh, Gordon the Gopher. And I'm wondering whether you guys might like some sort of partnership, whether we, we could whether we could market these things, because it's very popular. And he said, um, well, leave it with me. He said, I'll, I'll get back to you. And two or three days later, he had obviously watched in the afternoons. And he came back and said, I've got to say that the BBC are really not interested. I said, at all? So he said, no, no. He said, I don't think there's anything in Gary the gaffer. Um, So no, not for us. I said, do you mind if I do it on my own? And and he said, no, no, the BBC have no interest. Uh, You're free to do whatever you like. So we found a company, we made the gophers, and he bought half my house. My first house in Chiswick. I remember because um, it was the number one Christmas gift that year, and they ran out. Yeah. And and you know, it's like um, it was like Mrs. Hinch's Minky. You know, you just couldn't get one for love and the money. Your producer said to me when I walked in today, said that um, that he got one, and uh, and I said, does uh, does the squeak still work? Yes, it does, because the squeaks were the first thing to go. They go mute quite early on. <laughs> <laughs> there he is. <laughs> how, how many gophers did you sell? 
oh, I don't know, like, like thousands and thousands and thousands. No, tens of thousands, hundreds yeah. of thousands, not, I would imagine. A, a very, very great many. A very many. lot. Yes, a very big <laughs> lot. Um, because, because houses in Chiswick aren't cheap and it goes in <laughs> half of that. So, so it was, they still crop up now and people who've, uh, who've got them. Um, I and wonder it, what an eBay, let's have a look, shall we, while we're talking. Let's have a look on eBay for a Gordon and Gopher. Um, what's the vintage site called? I can never remember the name of it. Is Ooh, it Etsy or something? Don't know. Etsy's a vintage toy yeah, website. Oh, right, okay, okay. So let's have a look at some of those. Have you got one still? Uh, yes, I've got the original one. Um, and because what used to happen was that uh, how much is that worth? I don't know. I've got a number <laughs> of things that are probably worth quite a lot of money. I would have thought. Looking back on it, um, it's uh, the the gopher. Once we the from the very original one, then we got them manufactured, and the manufactured ones looked like Gordon when they were dirty, but they didn't look like. Um, Gordon when they were brand new. Right. So when one was wearing out, um, we would have to retire the one that was wearing out because the squeak was, and the producer would say, oh, the squeak's going, okay, we'll get another one. One out of the box. But it was about a week before we could use it on the telly because it wasn't dirty enough. So anyone who came into our office was asked. <laughs> To rob the gopher. <laughs> if you had slightly dirty... Couldn't happen nowadays. <laughs> if you had slightly dirty London hands and you'd been out, you know, whatever, getting your lunch. Oh, have you been out? Yeah, could you rob the gopher? <laughs> so, so the gopher was, had a dirty head and the only reason it looked like that consistently was because we had to, we had to rub a new one. <laughs> when we did uh, the big breakfast, it was very similar to the zig and zag and I used to live with zig and zag. We had an apartment, and um, honestly, we did. And I came down one, one day, and Mick and Kieran, who, who were responsible for Zig and Zag, shall we say, um, they didn't tell me, but they'd ordered the new Zig and Zags, and they'd ordered three new Zigs and three new Zags, and they were quite life-size. And so I came down at 3 o'clock the next morning to get ready to go to the big breakfast, and they'd sat them all at the table. And the, and the three Zigs were on one side, and the three Zags were on, on the other. And then the original Zig and Zag, because we didn't know if it was going to be a hit, so we just bought two in the beginning. The dirty ones were at each, each the head of the table. And it was like, it was That's really sad. Bizarre, but it's really, our last supper. Yeah, but it's really sad. It's like, no, no, get these imposters out of here. Uh, yeah. I want my dirty Zig and I want my dirty Zag. And we didn't have anybody to rub our Zigs or our Zags. <laughs> We've got to have a dirty I mean, we zig. Looked, we looked for some people to rub them. <laughs> that wasn't going to happen, though. Oh, my God, we could talk for forever about Gordon the Gopher. 35 quid on Etsy at the moment. Is it? An original. Oh, that's not bad. That's not bad at that's all. Not that, bad. That's not in the box, though. In the box, it would be like a million pounds or something stupid. Well, yeah, I'm a, a boxed one, I would have thought. Yeah. Be very rare. What else have you got, then, at home? I've got the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Oh, come on. Oh, this is awful. For me, I've got to go. My wife's going to hear this, and she's saying, "Well, you know, when, when is?" Because I bought the, um, I bought the original coat from Whitnell and I. You know, did you? Yeah, yeah, Whitnell's, For the movie. Whitnell's coat. Yeah, <gasps> uh, I bought it at a charity auction of the twentieth, tenth uh, anniversary of the movie. For uh, Richard E. Grant was for an orphanage in um, Good heavens. in in South Africa, and Zimbabwe. Um, but we then resold it for the NHS this year for a load of money in the auction that I talked to you about, and. Um, it wouldn't be dissimilar with your. <laughs> well, well, I'd done. Uh, well, how much would you sell it for? How much would come I on, sell Christmas it for? Christmas is coming. I would never sell it. Oh, come on, there's all No, I'd never sell it, but I know that when I nicked it, it was worth 25,000. What? How come? So, I had been doing Joseph. Yes. Uh, and I'd done the initial 
uh, six weeks at the Palladium when Jason said he wanted to take a break and they were trying to find someone and it, it turned out bizarrely that it was me. And then Jason came back and then he decided he was going to leave. And so they said, we want to stay at the Palladium. Will you come back and do it for real? And I said, yes. And I did a year at the Palladium. And at the end of that year on the Palladium, they said, right, OK, well, that's, you know, we've come to the end here. We want to take it on the road. Would you go on the road with it? So I said, um, yeah, yeah, definitely. I'd, I'd love to do that. It'd be amazing. It's a great, it, it is and it remains a fantastic show and short, nice and short. So I'm on the last night in the Palladium, I'm uh, taking off the coat and hanging it up. And as I'm getting changed, I thought, what's going to happen to that? And I kept looking at it. What's going to happen to it? Where's it going to go? Because it was getting a bit raggedy and a bit tatty. Is it going to go in storage? Because the minute it leaves, they were all, each one of them was just a bit individual. So everyone's coats were slightly different. And I thought, oh, I can't let that go into storage. So I put it in a black bin liner, and as I left the Palladium, <laughs> I threw you it committed into the, a crime. I threw it into the boot <laughs> of the car. And now I thought, if they kick off, then I'll take it back. What you mean, the police? <laughs> <laughs> and I got a phone call from Paul, my manager, the next day. Said Phil, hi. Uh, <laughs> Hi, hi, mate. How are you? He said, yeah, it's a bit of a tricky one here. Mm. Right. He said, I've just had a call from the really useful group. Um, the coat's gone missing, and they were wondering if you knew anything about that. And the head of um, wardrobe had gone ballistic. Uh, and I said, yeah, it's me. I took it last night. And he went, shit, mate, you... You stole the coat. So I said, no, I, well, yes, but I'll bring it back. Tell them, tell them uh, it's in, in, in the boot of the car and, uh, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll bring it straight back. And he said, leave it with me. So some sort of high-profile Technicolor Dreamcoat summit went on and a deal was reached. And the deal was, because I was going out on the road, they were going to make another brand-new pristine coat for, for the tour. But because you were out on tour, you had to do a whole load of promotion. So that would be standing out, take the coat out and onto the uh, way up to Edinburgh Castle and down on the beach in Blackpool and all the places we went to. So they said, if you will use your tatty coat for the publicity outside, that means that we keep the new coat pristine always inside the theatre. So I said, absolutely, I'm, I'm, I'm up for that. So all of the publicity for the tour was my coat. And, and so it got sandy, it got a bit dirty, it got, you know, messed up a bit more. But what I loved was the currency of memories was not over because it was, it was my palladium coat. Then it was the publicity coat for the tour. And then at the end of it, I, I, it was mine. Well, hang on a minute. In between, it was the stolen coat as well. It's always been the stolen coat. <laughs> it remains a stolen coat even now. Although the last person to wear it, I think, was either Holly or Deck. Um, because anyone who comes round wants to put the coat say, on. I was going to say, I mean, for the one invite alone, please, yeah. I've got to come round and wear the coat. Yeah, well, you've, you can't help but swirl it. Oh, you, you know, have to swirl it. You've got to swirl it. Kind of give it a bit of the old matador. Yeah, so that's there. Oh, my goodness me. See, I'd already bought my wife something for this Christmas. I mean, you know, this is, podcast is not about this, but it, it is at the moment, right? Um, and the other day, she was a, a little bit uh, frazzled, so I thought, I'd just give it to her. So I gave it to her now. She wasn't that impressed. And I'm now blown my Christmas present. And I'm like, 
what did you do that for, you idiot? Because she wasn't in the mood for a present. She wanted a hug or a kiss. Or a, and it, and I think she, she'll come to like what I, I bought her. But um, if I, if we could just come round and she could just wear it for a photo. Are you not going to tell us what, what y- you bought? No. <laughs> I was waiting for the punchline of what it was that you bought. No, I bought a... No, I'm not going to. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> All right, I will tell you if you want me, do you want me to tell you. Yeah. Okay. We had th- we had this NHS auction where I sold a load of my stuff, and and Jamie Oliver uh, gave us some stuff, and she loves Jamie Oliver, and she loves cooking. So he put up for auction his first ever and his favourite chopping knife. So I bought it from our own auction. Right. Um. So but, you bought her a knife, an old knife for Christmas. No, she. <laughs> it didn't have a plug on. It could have been worse. And I thought she'd be thrilled with it. And I think secretly she is. She just forgot to show it for yeah. a while. So if we could come round to your house for for one wearing of the coat to, to have a, a twizzle in the coat and a yeah, Polaroid. Yeah. Uh, by the way, we've got a. Po- we've got two. I've got two Polaroid cameras. I'll give you one. That's the deal. I'll get and they've got that technical. You know that str- yes, the Polaroid yes, stripe, yes, on, yeah, of course. which will go with the coat. Yes. And I bought her one of these. And I'd lost it. I lost it. In, this is a few Christmases ago. And I bought it in between. Sorry, I lost it in between buying it her and Christmas. So I bought another one. And then in about March, I found the, the first one. So right. you could, that's the deal. Well, OK. Is that's that all a right? reasonable deal. I like that. How, how come it was worth 25 grand first time round? They are so beautiful if you look at them. Is that's, that what it costs to make? I think that's how much it was to make. Whoa. Time, yeah. All right. So, so um, I, know, I know this podcast could go on forever. Um, <laughs> we're only at Gordon the Gopher, for heaven's sake. Have you got to go? No. Okay, good. Excellent. Okay, then it will go on forever. Um, send a taxi for the coat and a taxi for my wife. Let's do the show right here. <laughs> Please. So we've got we've got a Gordon the Gopher at home. We've got the original Gordon the Gopher. We've got the original Schofield uh, Joseph coat. Mm-hmm. Um, give us one more piece. My, my EMI 2001 camera. Right, oh, which is proper. That's proper. That is proper. That is serious. It's all gassed up as well. So it's got a massive, great oil bladder in it, and it, so it lifts beautifully, and it's gassed as well. So it's smooth as it, as it, as it, as it goes up and down. Again, look, it's like goosebumps. Unbelievable. Um, and I'm just thinking about this. I'm picturing those three things. You don't really need anything. I'm sure you've got other stuff as well, but that, that is the, the triumvirate of, of, of TV glory, isn't it? Yeah, well, uh, Steph bought me my spitting image puppet head. Right. Uh, and that's a that's another thing that I'm very proud of. Mm. Uh, and uh, they decided when they did me, <clears throat> I had huge teeth. <laughs> did you? Did, mine did too. Did, 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 did yeah, and work? they couldn't get my voice right either. They never got mine right either. Thank God, because that means we weren't in it as much. No, very seldom ever <laughs> in it. Uh, so I've got that. So yeah, there, there are little bits. I'm very sentimental. I love, I collect, I, I save everything. When I was doing the first night of Joseph, um, and I was so terrified, and I, I, I enjoyed writing the, the the terror in the book. It was fun to write that bit. Um, and got on stage first night, and in the interval, um, Andrew Lloyd Webber sent a ripped a bit of paper out of something. It just said "superstar!" exclamation mark on it, and I've still got that. When I worked at Broadcasting House, um, I, one of my jobs as a as the um, I, I booked out Ewers because I was bookings clerk. So I did the engine booked out the engineers for the recorded shows, radio shows, and I also booked out Ewers, which is a tape recorder. It's a tape recorder, yeah. and um, and so and my job was to get them back. And I, I phoned up uh, a very frazzled uh, journalist who was very sweet when I said to her, um, "Your Ewer is overdue." And uh, she said, "I'm so sorry. I've been in a war zone, and I'll bring it back as soon as I can." And I said, "Well, that's okay, but if you could bring it back as soon as as soon as possible, that would be great." Kate Aidy was really very gracious on the phone. <laughs> Um, and one of the one of the booking forms, which I saved, um, 
was Andy Peebles was flying to New York to interview John Lennon. And he booked a Ewer. And when the booking form came through, bearing in mind I'm sort of 17 and I love radio, and the booking form came through and Andy had signed it himself. And it was like an autograph. So I photocopied um, the uh, original and um, I... In fact, I didn't photocopy. I don't think there was a photocopy. I copied out. I copied out what was on that Ewer form and put that through the system and kept the original. And then two days later, suddenly, you know, yeah. that Ewer had recorded something very unique. Yeah, it was the last ever interview, wasn't yeah. it, with yeah. with John Lennon? Um, our paths—they never really crossed, but the parallels unbelievable. Because um, I auditioned for No Limits. Did you? Yeah, they didn't keep the tape at all. So well done. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but and, at least you know you weren't blonde, so that's why you didn't get but it. But also, they must have looked at the tapes for the thing for the audition. Oh my oh, god! What? Oh my god! <laughs> Did you send a tape to them? I can't remember. Oh my god! You could have been doing the broom cover. Was it Peter Hamilton? Yes. Yes. It was him. Yeah. <laughs> Spitting image. We've got that going on there. They they sent me um, the the treatment for the cube. Did they? Yes. I think they. You may have been still procrastinating it wasn't i'm sure i wasn't being offered it over you wow but maybe you wobbled that's good i like that as well that's good uh and i'm sure there are there are many others but but oh absolutely great fun um so if there was a fire Mm. the coat the camera or the gopher (sighs) wow funnily enough no none of them the camera no Oh, something else. Mm, something else that I've just thought that I would r- race for first. Well, we can't wait for this. <laughs> I'm gonna re- I've got a drum roll. I've got one here because we're still in the radio studio. Uh, let's get the drum roll going. Okay, here we go. Take as long as you like. Better, more important than the gopher. The original BBC TV 2001 camera. The Philip Schofield, Joseph and his technical Dreamcoat Dreamcoat is... The thing that I would take. From my house, if it were burning, I would rush in and save my Catherine Hepburn signed photograph. Da 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 da! <laughs> Followed by my Judy Dench one, which is side by side. Really? Over the gopher? Yeah, afraid so. But you don't get those photographs without the gopher. Well, no, it's weird, isn't it? I mean, the, the gopher is harder to... If the house is on fire, both the gopher and the coat are harder to get out because they're sort of stashed. You can't mitigate this decision. But my Catherine Hepburn signed picture and my Judy Dench one, and when I was in the broom cupboard, Judy was a big fan of the broom cupboard and sent a signed photo which says, To Philip, from your most ardent admirer, Judy Dench. That would have to come with That me. is cool. Okay, where do we go next? Let's talk about going live. Let's talk about going live. So, so you get to the, the sacred temple of Saturday morning telly. Mm. You know, um, briefly back to the broom, broom cupboard. We all knew something was going on in the broom cupboard with the broom cupboard. A, when it started, because it was brilliant. Um, then, then when it really sort of found itself and it found its own voice, and that was all down to you and Gopher, Gordon the Gopher, and everybody else that was involved. And all the different producers were brilliant, weren't they? Mm-hmm. And you made something out of nothing. That's what you did. You made Summit out and out. Um, and then the links were getting higher ratings than the programmes. And by the way, that didn't pass any of us by. And we completely knew why. And 
and then then you get you get offered the the um the holy grail of saturday mornings mm. um and i presume you picked up from mike reed would that be or yes yeah so saturday so swap shop saturday superstore going live yeah all right first show going live do you remember that? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Clear that. as day. So I'd fought off Biddy Baxter and uh, <laughs> and Chris Bellinger had phoned and said, and all of the big jobs that I've ever done have all been, there's been no great drum roll. It's just been a very sort of quick conversation. And Chris Bellinger phoned up and said, do you want to come and play on Saturday mornings? And those were his exact words. And I said, yeah. OK, well, let's go and have a coffee. And uh, and so Sarah was staying on. Sarah Green was staying on, and it was going to be me and Sarah Green doing this new show. They brought in Trevor Simon to do the comedy. Uh, they said, "Can we can we have Gordon Gopher? Can he come from the from the um, broom cupboard?" So Gordon came down as well. Um, and uh, and the first, bearing in mind, I had watched the first ever Swap Shop, and Noel was my hero. And I watched the first ever Swap Shop live, two hours, Saturday morning, phone-ins, interviews. Oh, my God. It was so exciting. Live from Television Centre. Oh, I just wanted that so badly. I oh, wanted one to do Yep. Boom. <laughs> I wanted it so badly. Um, and then... Went to watch the first one. Da, la, la, la. Went to New Zealand. I'm gone. You know. Then come back again uh, four years later, um, and that's where my eye was. And then Chris said, Do "You want to come and play on Saturday mornings?" And so the night before, I'm lying in bed, and the next morning I'm going to get up and I'm going to do the first going live. And I couldn't sleep. I was excited. I got in incredibly early. Um, I was there before most of the crew, but I just walked around the studio. I made myself a cup of tea. Then the, the crew started to come in, and I'm chatting to them. And and then Sarah came in, and and the first show was was us walking down the side, just behind the site, the big black curtain, and you've got all the you know sort of the gubbins of the studio wall, uh, walking down there, the, both of us as we came in, and then walked through and, and showed everyone the the studio, um, and it was in. Uh, so it, <clears throat> if you haven't read the book, you won't know my love affair with Television Centre. And so I, when I was 17 and I got into Broadcasting House as a bookings clerk and they gave me my pass. And I said to John Goodman, who was the guy I worked with, where does this pass get me in to? And he said, well, anywhere. I said, well, like all BBC buildings. So he said, yeah, anywhere. I said, does this get me into Television Centre? And he said, uh, yeah, why would you want to go there? I said, uh, oh, so I was just interested. <laughs> and that was on a, like a Monday. I waited till Saturday morning. Saturday morning, I was up bright and early on the tube from St. John's Wood to uh, White City. Um, walked down the, the street. And this is the first time I'd ever seen it. And I had at home the Ladybird Book of Television. And in the Ladybird Book of Television, there was a map of Television Centre on the inside back cover. And so I walked down Wood Lane and there it was. Oh, my God, this is the building I've watched on the TV. And it's an iconic building. Um, it's my favourite building in the world. And so I walked down, I walked, get, showed my pass at the, at the commissioner. I thought this is never going to work. And he just waved me through and I'm in. And I spent the day walking around TV centre. <laughs> You're shaking talking I, about it. It was so amazing. Every studio, the ones that I could go in, because some had red lights on, so I couldn't go in. But they had viewing gallery, galleries at that stage, so you could go up to the second floor and you could look through and down onto the studio floor. Um, I went absolutely everywhere. I covered as much as I possibly could. 
I didn't find the broom cupboard because that was that was here. The whole of presentation was on behind the lifts on the fourth floor, um, and that you you wouldn't have known where that was. But I went up and had a subsidised dinner, the best I'd eaten for a month because I was, was had no money. A big subsidised dinner. I had steak and field mushrooms and chips. And as I got into the lift to go up to the canteen, Diana Dawes stepped on my foot and apologised. You should step on the other one, it's fine. <laughs> and I just thought, life doesn't get any better than this. And so, uh, back to the Saturday mornings. Here I am now. I'm I'm in TV Centre. I am in. They're all TCs. Television Centre One. Television, and, and we were in TC Seven. And TC Seven was the uh, was the was the Saturday morning uh, studio, which I loved so much. And then you know, life moves on. They look like they're going to shut Television Centre down and I'm there on the last show that there's ever going to be broadcast from TV Centre and I'm a guest. And I said to the to the team who were producing it, I said, I'm, I'm like two hours early. Can, is it, don't panic if I'm not in my dressing room, but I need to walk around. I need to have another look around. And they went, yeah, yeah, it's fine. I said, I gave my phone number because producers like to know where you are. Gave them my phone number. And I said, I'm just going to go and have a look. And I walked around Television Centre again. But this time it was empty. There was nobody in it. All the studios were lit, but empty. Everywhere was still as it always had been. And this is before people started stripping stuff off it. Um, and I went to find the broom cupboards, which had, the, the, I knew that the um, configuration had changed a lot. But I found the window that was behind the desk, that I, behind the chair. Um, but we had to cover up with kids' pictures. Um, so I found that and uh, and had this big look around said goodbye to the building at the end of that show and walked out and thought, this is the saddest thing ever. I cannot believe I cannot believe they shut this place down. I can't believe it. And I was gutted. And then years later, not that long, but we, ITV had decided that they were going to sell or get rid of the, um, the big London studios where we were on the South Bank. And they were looking for other studios. And they said, yeah, we've decided where we're going to go. So where, where, where are we going? Where are we moving to? Oh, we're going to a television centre. What? And we are now in TC3, and I just couldn't believe it. And who did you take for a little um, tour? <laughs> so Holly said, um, wh where was the broom cupboard? So we, we've been in there a few days. She said, where was the broom cupboard? So I said, it's, it's behind the lifts on the fourth floor. Um, there's a big, you go, you go up, this, so there are the big square lifts. Round the side of that is a, a set of little marble steps and you go up, you go round the back and there's a door there and you go in through that door and then down this big corridor and on the right-hand side is the uh, continuity for BBC One. On the left-hand side is the continuity for BBC Two. So you've got the, the, the full presentation desks and the booth at the end of it and on BBC One. That's where we were for the broom cupboard. Then you carry on going down there. There's a, there's a, a studio on the left-hand side which was called Pres A and they used to do the weather out of there. And the studio to the right-hand side was Pres B. They seldom ever used that, but the old grey whistle test used to come out of there. So that was a very famous studio. So Holly said, show me show me where it is. So I said, OK. I said, it won't be there now, I'm pretty sure, because it's all been turned into flats. And it's uh, uh, now, obviously, television and, um, and apartments go hand in hand, which they've done beautifully. So we went in, up to the fourth floor, got out of the lift, turned to go to where the steps were, and there was no, there was a door, just a white door there. And I said, I said, you can't, you can't get in. 
I said, it's, I didn't think it would exist. It'll all be flats back there now. So I tried the door and I opened the door and pulled it open and inside that cupboard was a mop and a broom. So cool, isn't it? A broom. So it was cool. actually a broom cupboard. Did you steal them? No. <laughs> I bet you did. <laughs> uh, so Go Live um, lasted for how many years? Six. Under your incumbency, yeah. that was. Because it carried on as well, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and Live, Live and Kicking was next with Andy Peters and Emma Forbes. That's right. And then, um, then it was Zoe and... Uh, Jamie, Jamie yeah. yeah. So that for a while you were sort of straddling um, both the major channels, ITV and BBC, um, and you did uh, hit shows for both, and you did some pilots that didn't turn out because that's the way it, life mm. is. Um, and what was it like working for both? Was it was what one channel always trying to get exclusively for a well, while? Well, uh, funnily enough, I I worked for the BBC exclusively, um, and then. Uh, the ideas sort of ITV were after me and wanted me to to go over to ITV exclusively but I was still with the BBC and and once again in the book you know it's it's BBC is sort of fairly ingrained within me um and I thought I can't imagine that I would do do that um and I said to to the office you know we have to find out what BBC are offering now because Saturday mornings were but both Sarah and I decided we probably would stop because they were so good always quick while you're ahead and so, um, so I, we asked, and and the the only idea that, that that the BBC had at that stage was that Philip Schofield cycles the length of Britain and interviews people on along the way, and I thought oh, I'm not sure that's for me. Um, and we had this meeting, and I said I think we have to talk to ITV, and they had some really quite, you know, sort of innovative ideas. Um, and so I said, right, that's it. I'm I'm going to jump. And I went to ITV and it was the most perfect marriage of fun. And it's, you know, it's it's a different environment. It's a very much a different environment. Um, and uh, and so, you know, I get that was the first time I said, I'll see you after the break, um, which is you know lovely. If you're doing a long show, at least you can have a wee and have a wee in four minutes, which is perfect. Um, but uh, but it, it, it that has turned out to be a wonderful relationship. And so to have my relationship with ITV now, who I utterly adore, everyone within that the hierarchy, it's not that big. It's not like the BBC, which is massive, which I still admire enormously, but it's it's not massive. It's quite small. So you you know everybody. and um, and so to have that, and then us go back to, te to Television Centre is like, are you joking? It doesn't, doesn't get any better than this. Yeah. I think the dream coat works. Don't you? <laughs> it is. It's yeah. worth 25 grand yeah, yeah. to anybody's money. <laughs> but it's so funny because I've always thought that people, you know, ITV sort of people are really good for the BBC when they go there. And I think that BBC people are really good for ITV when they mm. go there too. Mm. You know, and you, 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 you know, if you think, because you were, you are a very sort of, I don't know, not commercial, commercially attractive broadcaster. And also, you know, you want the freedom. And I suppose you would have always ended up really... It wasn't inevitable, but, you know... Yeah, it, I mean, you just can't ever tell, can no, you? you can't tell, I suppose. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty and all that kind of stuff. Well, I mean, if you'd, um, as you say, if you they'd called you rather than me for the broom cupboard. The <laughs> whole world would have no, been different. No, seriously, thank God that I'm happy with where I am. Yeah. You know, everything we've ever done gets to where we are now. Yep. And that's a thought that has kept me going on so many <laughs> levels, on yeah. so many occasions, things like that. So so this morning, 2002, 
yes, yeah. I think so, yeah. So, uh, see, that's flown by, hasn't it? 17, you, on this morning for 17 flipping I years. I think it's 18. Well, it's now. 18, yeah, yeah, it is 18, because it is 2002. Yeah. 20 minus 2 is 18. Wow, there you go. <laughs> um, but, uh, but most recently, the highest viewing figures ever. Yes. Tell us about that. Well, that was that was when the country was when we were all locked down and we were all terrified that you know are we coming off? Are they taking us off? Do we have to come off? And it was decided that some shows would be given this key worker status, so that um, and and I think what it what it was, which we found out that it was, is to try and keep some sort of normality, the sort of the psyche, the the the, the mental health of the country. If there are if there are a few things they can watch or they can listen to which just reminds you of that the things are still in some areas as normal as they possibly can be. And so uh, they said, we want you to stay on. Um, and it was, it was the weirdest time because, once again, sort of a little bit geeky, but in Studio 3 where we are, it's sort of split in the middle by our wall. So if you imagine the the behind the 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 view you have of the Thames, which used to be a live view, but is now recorded, it's screens. On the other side of that is Good Morning Britain, and so Piers is on on there. But they have their full on studio going, and then there is a, a the gap of um, Lorraine, and Lorraine is from Studio Two, so she's next door. And then we set, we can rehearse and we can do all of our stuff. Then, of course, along comes the circumstances of COVID and um, Lorraine's studios shut down because they want to keep things as tight as possible with the fewest amount of people. So Lorraine then does her show from the end of the desk of Good Morning Britain. So it's in the studio next door, in our studio. And what that meant technically was that Holly and I would walk, we'd make ourselves up on our own. Um, we'd walk upstairs We'd sit in a dark studio, pretty much a dark studio, and there'd be maybe four crew, cut down the amount of cameras, and you've got Good Morning Britain going on on the other side, but it's now Lorraine. So Lorraine is sitting at the end of the desk. She finishes her show, and they come off air, and in that four-minute commercial break, all the lights come on in our studio, all the cameras come on, all the talkback comes on, and... We're four minutes from going live with a two and a half hour show, which we've had four minutes to prep for. And that was the most, the weirdest, most exciting, most bizarre time when we all would be about to go on air or when the opening titles ran, certainly in the first few weeks of lockdown. And we'd look at each other and think, what the hell is going on here? What is happening? And... And then you fall into a pattern and then you get used to the way it is. Um, and I would never profess to say it's like wartime because, of course, it's not like wartime. But it felt like that sort of hunkered down feeling that it might have felt like then. Um, camaraderie, you know, we, we were in it. We're still in it even now. It's, you know, we're all in it together. And because we were there every day and because we, um, we, we I think, you know, we were as normal as we possibly could be. I think that's why we got massive figures. People just wanted to turn on and see. So, and also our policy wasn't to batter and wasn't to give massive bad news constantly. What we wanted to do was to obviously be journalistically sensible, but we wanted to all, always give that positive spin yeah. and be positive about this because, you know, because we're it's messing us up. It yeah. continues to mess us up even now. Yeah. 
I don't want to hear constant bad. And news. there are other shows that do that, and you've got to have you've got to keep your own USP, haven't you? Yeah. And you, you you were sort of bookended by by shows that do that, and quite rightly. So so that all makes sense. Um, so after you're coming out this year, Feb seventh, you know, after COVID, after lockdown, um, you know, after the biggest viewing figures since you've been at. Um, uh, this morning and by the way holly's only been there for half of that mm. which we forget about because firm Fer, there was fern and Fern's phil well, before yeah, yeah. before philly willoughby yeah uh, <laughs> as, as we say sometimes um you know it's almost like you know the foundations couldn't be stronger 18 mm. years in yes do you know what i mean it's like they've it's like the concrete's just setting yeah you could do this forever yeah um, uh, and 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 it's constantly reported, you know, sort of Holly and Philip um, uh, leaving this morning, you know, and it's on the front page of so many magazines so regularly. And no matter how many times we say, there are absolutely no plans to, to, to leave this morning. There are literally no plans for me to leave this morning. I adore that show. I get to meet everybody. Uh, in the days when you could have guests in the studio, that was extraordinary because people would, you know, you've had your idols. You watch a TV show and and uh, and suddenly people who you've never known before who suddenly become, you know, your, your massive fans will then come in on the on the show. You can have ideas. It's a show that thrives off everybody's ideas. You're not just a presenter of this morning. You are part of the production team. And that's really important as well. We have this wonderful, fluid way of working. Um, everyone, everyone is sort of on the same level. And that for me is essential. When, when before, before um, the, the event, um, that last Christmas, I mean, I was, I was getting battered uh, in the, in the papers. Um, and as I said before, you know, it, it, it's one of those things that, you know, it keeps your feet on the ground. You, you, you have to keep your feet on the ground. Um, and, and being held to account is fine, but it has to be true. It has to be honest, in my view. You can say what you like, you can, if it, but so long as it's based in fact. And there was, there was no, um, no, there was nothing that was being said that had any truth in it whatsoever. There was no, and there has never been a feud with Holly. And the thing with that was that when they're writing Philip and Holly in feud, we couldn't have been closer because I've told her my secret and she was holding me together at work. So that's so untrue. You know, the, the fact that there was a toxic atmosphere in this morning, there's never been anything like that. Everyone is equal. We all love each other. We're all, they were worried about me. We all talk about each other's families and their lives and things. It's a tight knit team. So the fact that, you know, there was supposed to be all of this going on, absolutely and completely untrue. And when you, in your life, in your head, if you um, are struggling with the deepest, darkest issues, but you always have, I have always had my job. And the guy, I'm the guy that people like to work with. Because, you know, I, I, we have, we have, no matter what show I'm doing, we have fun. We have a, it's a, it's a great environment. To me, it's essential that we, when I want, walk away and it's maybe, you know, it's that, you know, I, I, probably a bit of paranoia, but when I walk out of a studio or I walk away from a filming set or walk away from, I want people to say, he's a nice guy. He's great to work with. Isn't he fun to work with? I want to be fun to work. That's why I've been doing it for such a long time, I think, because if I was an arsehole, I don't think I'd have got what I've got. And then for people to be, to be said, actually, by the way, he's shocking to work with. He's difficult to work with. and All of this stuff. I didn't recognize this man. How is this true? How could this how could this happen? The one solid thing I had underneath my feet was the 
the security rug of my job, my love of studio, my love of live TV, my love of the people that I work with, when that was pulled out from underneath me, that was a shocker. That was a real shocker. Um, but I still, you know, still maintained, and, and we had to maintain, um, this, you know, this sort of smiling face on a, in, in the mornings, and sometimes it's hard. I mean, what's interesting about your situation, all of it, um, but particularly, is the fact that you had to come out twice because you had to come out in your private life. And because mm. you're a public person, mm. you had to come out in public life as well or in public. Um, and, of course, because you told some people, it wasn't just you coming out. It was a group coming out in a way, wasn't it? Because because Holly knew, had mm. known for how many months beforehand? Oh, a few. Yeah. Quite a few. And so, so some people knew and they were... Because often when somebody comes out, you know, it's it's their secret and their secret alone, and they may tell their family all at once. And you know, there's four or five people told, and and it, you know, I'm sure it, it's still sequential and systematic, and it could take weeks, months, maybe even years. But you had two comings out. You had your private coming out, mm. and you had your public coming out. Yeah, and and uh, private is one thing, and 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 it was so warm and so lovely. Um, Public is a tricky one because, you know, uh, you this is the job that I do. So if you do this job, then everything you do is going to be public. And that's the price you pay. Um, and 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 I, as you know, as I've said, I said in the book, quite rightly, anyone could say to me, well, you call that stress, you know, grow a pair, you know, just get pick yourself up and get on with it. Um, but it was difficult because the, the you do something like this and it's public and you're scared. And so I was terrified, really frightened. I, I I wasn't so frightened with the family because I know them and love love them so much. Um, telling the girls, telling my girls, made me made me physically sick when I when I knew I had to go and tell the girls. And and both Steph and I stood at the car and we were driving in to see them in town. And uh, and she said, "Can you drive?" And I said, "I can't drive." She said, "I can't drive either." I can't. She said, "My legs have gone." I said, "My legs have gone too." And in the end, it, Steph was the one that, that drove in for us to tell the girls, um, and they were incredible. I mean, they were just quite extraordinary. Suddenly, they became the parents. They jumped up and hugged us both and said that everything was going to be okay, um, which was amazing uh, in itself. So, doing that was tough, uh, really tough. And then, uh, and then, you know, once you've once you've covered all points in the family, then you've got to start thinking about doing it in public and. You know, and there's no way around it, and that's why that's why I did it the way I did it on this morning. Because I think after 18 years of working with the, not just the family of people who who work on the show, but the family of viewers, it, it's the wider family of viewers. I thought uh, you have to know first. I have to tell you first. Because we've left a bit. There's a big hole that we haven't even begun to turn the pages of, and we don't have time because you've got a life to lead, and I've got to get back to my kids. But I could literally talk to you all day. But um, please come back and let's have another conversation whenever sure. you want. You don't have to, but I'll come to yours. We'll bring, well, I'll, I'll bring a ewer. I'll get a ewer booked out. Bring a ewer, and I'll bring the coke. We'll buy a ewer off eBay. And we'll shake some <laughs> cans of coke up and see what happens. <laughs> but a um, couple of things. Uh, because we talked, we talked about Steph a lot. Just let's talk about when your eyes first met, where you first met her, because it's a beautiful story. Oh, um, so we had the same group of friends, um, and uh, and Steph was a network assistant, which meant that as I was sitting in the 
broom cupboard on the other side of the glass I mentioned before there's this big there's this big desk and then there's a network assistant who is um, uh, part of this essential team to keep BBC One on time and running and getting the shows in um, and she noticed me and I hadn't necessarily because I just walked through with a box of letters and stuff and this crazy guy in a strange jumper um, and then we got to know each other and we started chatting and then we realised we got all the same group of friends and we started to go out a lot more then we just went out with just two or three of us da -da 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 -da. and then we went filming and um, and we were filming Gary Newman who'd got a plane and uh, and we went out on a filming trip and Steph was the PA on the on the Gary Newman filming trip and uh, she went into work the next day in the same clothes um, uh, after our Gary Newman film. Uh, and then and then she was li she living with a lovely sister, Georgina, um, and I was filming a thing called Schofield's Europe. And my house was going to be empty for you know, sort of six, eight weeks. And, I, and she was, and her sister, I think, had found a new boyfriend, and so they were in each other's pockets. Um, I said, why don't you just use my house? Live, live in my house. I said, you can have this. I said, I'm away for the, you know, for the whole summer. I'm filming. I'm doing this European thing. And so I said, I live here. Oh, well, that's incredible. That's fine. I said, yeah, make yourself at home. You know, enjoy the place. Da -da -da. And, um, and so when I came back, uh, we went out for dinner. And uh, the next day she packed the car up and she had a little Fiat Panda. And she packed the car up and I'm standing... Uh, <laughs> You like the car? I, like, I don't mind a fit panda. Quite <laughs> like um, and uh, so she packed all the stuff into the car, and I'm standing at the at the uh, hallway door in Nether Raven Road in Chiswick, and um, and watching her pack her car up, and then just as she slammed down the hatchback, I said, "Can you have to come back? Just come over here a second. So she came over, and I said, "Don't go, don't go. Unpack it." And so she unpacked the car, and that was that. So I mean, some people might say that at this point, you know, so you weren't gay then, then. Mm, of course they would, and why wouldn't they? And what would you say to that? I would say no. I, I, it, I don't know how it works in other people's heads. I don't know how it works. I don't know how, e even now, even now, I had lunch with Michelle Visage. She was one of the first people who said, you are incredible. You are unbelievable what you've done. You, you and I have to have lunch. So we went, and it, it, we just ended up having coffee. It was the last person I, I saw before the wheels fell off the world. Um, and because I was so looking forward to being able to meet people and talk to them and just discuss. And I said, I don't know. I, I like I'm in a club, but I don't know whether I can't find a membership card. I don't know how this works. What nights do they meet? <laughs> I don't know how this works. What am I supposed to do? I said, I don't. I, I feel a bit embarrassed uh, and presumptuous about putting a rainbow emoji after anything I, I write. And she went, don't be so bloody stupid. She said, you know, this is ridiculous. You're beating yourself up. You know, just just now begin to live your life. So, yes, there is no question that people would say, ah, of course you knew. But I'm sorry. I don't know how it happens in other people's heads. But in my head, my career, my life, my love for Steph, when, oops, um, when, we, when we had the girls, my love for the girls... You know, we are we've been all over the world. We've we've seen amazing things. We've done incredible things as a family, as the four of us. I have two beautifully, incredibly wonderful daughters. So, no, it wasn't there. And how long will the wedding ring stay on for? I uh, see. That's a very good question, Chris. Um, um, and I don't know. I don't know because I'm still married to Steph. There's a great deal of talk of divorce. We have not discussed that 
at all. <laughs> it's mad when everybody else is saying what you're saying and you're not even thinking it. Uh, well, I mean, it's lovely because the, the papers have shown some wonderful pictures of the inside of our family home, which is actually the set of how to spend it. <laughs> Um, so uh, well done there. There's your family home. No, that's not strictly true. Did, um, have you not stolen it in the past and it's in your garage? That particular set? <laughs> it's a big house in Surrey. Um, and so, and they've also, you know, and, and quite rightly, I had no issue with this. You know, yeah. it's fine. Uh, but they've also been, they've been discussing at great length mm. the, the conversations that we've had about divorce. Yeah. Um, and that's not, that's not being discussed. Um, we are picking our way through. Yeah. Um, and however that works, then it's a work in progress. I am a work in progress. Steph is a work in progress. We all are. Mm. We're all a work in progress. And one day at a time is a very wise way to, to live your life. You know, you have a plan, but, you know, one day at a time works for me. Um, works for lots of people. Uh, I think we need to talk quickly mm. before you go about your amazing management company. Because in the business, you know, they are so revered. And you've mentioned Peter mm. and you mentioned Russell, who I had dealings with because, um, well, I just have, you know, because of the past. Of the past. So Peter, again, great DJ, 545s at 545. Did you ever witness that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I got when I when I did the uh, just Radio tell people what show. we're talking about because they won't even know what we well, what they are forty fives. You know, well, I mean, Pete, 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 I loved Pete on Radio Luxembourg. Yep. Uh, he was my favorite DJ because he had a, such a brilliant uh, music taste. Yep. And when he was doing his show, his tea time show, mm. uh, he has always been a massive champion of new bands. Uh, and, and Pete would uh, Pete would always play the best music. Uh, and so I loved, loved that in him um, uh, because he was so passionate about music, is so passionate about music. And when he left Radio 1 and retired, um, he had the, the jingle, Summer Radio on the Peter Powell Show. Um, and Hello, I said, mate. <laughs> Hello, mate. Um, which he, Pete always, and he won't mind me saying, I'm sure um, Pete will always say mate because he can't remember what your name is. So uh, <laughs> he, uh, I said, can I have your jingle? So he said, yeah, you can. So we remade Peter's iconic summertime jingle, which I used to play on the Radio 1 Roadshow, yeah. which was just the absolute best. So the management company, when he set it up, um, they didn't want to be agents. They wanted it to be management. So an, an agent, you know, it's, it's backwards and forwards with work, and that was that. Uh, James Grant, which is now YMU, major mistake to change the name, but there we go. Um, Why did you say that? Oh, what the hell does YMU mean? I don't know. What I does shouldn't, it mean? I shouldn't, you, me, and us. I shouldn't even say this because I'm dissing. I'm, I, it sounds like I'm dissing. I'm not because they are brilliant. I'm over it now. Oh, so but, James Grant in the business is such a legendary moniker. Yeah, of course it is. So I, we disagree. It's the only thing we've ever dis And Pete and Russ are not in the company. I bet now, it's an IBM kind of thing. It'll, the, be, the it'll three be for initials. America. It'll be yeah. for America or something yeah. like that. Almost certainly cost a fortune to invent it. But there you go. Um, I, uh, I, I, I'm over it now, so it's absolutely fine. Good. However, I, I was most upset. Doesn't sound like it. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but they, so they set up James Grant in Pete's uh, house in Ibis Lane in Chiswick, and um, uh, it grew and grew and grew and grew. And because it was management, it wasn't just looking after work. They looked after your head. They looked after your life depending on how much you wanted so if you you know if they they helped me find my first house um all sorts of things that you know they, they manage your your life yeah um and that was and they've always really 
prided themselves in that and they're very very good at it and and remain i think remain the best in the business oh i mean all, your life is all the better for it because it's like you know being a presenter is like being a solo artist but it's better if you're in a band most of the time because you've got community mm. and they provided that community for presenters haven't they well what yes absolutely and we're all you know we're all sort you're of a gang like i am i'm yeah. envious of your gang you've got a great gang who's in the gang Oh my goodness, Ant and Deck, and um, we've got uh, Emma Willis, and I mean, good, it's massive, you know, Andy Peters, you know, it's a, Ruth and Eamon, it's a huge gang, um, and uh, and and more the better for it, you know. And we we I love I love that. Um, it's uh, been in recent times very helpful because they're my best mates, and so. You know, when it came to telling my best mates, what was what's I think what is testament to the people that I've surrounded myself with is that in that moment when I then knew I had to tell people and I started to tell people and it got wider and wider and wider and wider and wider. More and more people knew, more and more people knew in my in my group, my my social group, my friends and my work colleagues, that sort of thing. More and more and more and more. Nobody ever said anything. And that's why it took everyone by surprise on the 7th of february when i posted those words it took everyone by surprise because not a single person around me said a word and no, they could have done we didn't hear a whisper mm. I, we were on the air when it happened mm. and it was like what mm. wow um and then the conversation started and uh, you're here today uh, the book's amazing philip schofield life's what you make it you've got to go to a signing in about a minute all oh, right okay just before you go yeah. um final uh, three pages four pages <laughs> i can't read them all out. i was i was gonna ask you to read them because they're just so amazing but we haven't got time um but it is this it is this reflection about the fact that um you know you've, you 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 have you've slayed the dra dragon if you like um but what your work is not done by any means um but you've given yourself permission and the ability, facilitated um, the, your ability to be able to do that with your friends and your family and your wife and your girls, which is just awesome. So pleased for you. Um, and that, but you you do say you're in an impasse, um, and I get that completely. And I just wanted to make an observation. I don't know, but when I've been in similar situations, I didn't realise that actually one of the things that really helps, really really helps, is by especially because of what you've been through and the reaction from everybody because you did the right thing and you did do 100% the right thing. You couldn't have done any more, any more. Considering what had happened in the past, the past is the past, but you, you, you did all you could do when you did it in the best way, for the most sensitive way for everybody, the most transparent way, the most honest way for everybody possible. And now you have this sort of, it's like a paradise syndrome almost because it's like, you know, it's not, it's not like winning the lottery. It's not like that. But some, sometimes people win the lottery and they have the party and they go, and what next? And you're in the and what next phase, even though you've got your job and you write about this in the book, which is why it's so fantastic. The last few pages are absolutely, absolute gold. Um, they're sort of the wrapping the book needs, I think. Uh, not needs, but, but benefits from. And because so many people have been affected by what you've done and how you've done it, you know, maybe being of service to others for a while, you know, out of the circle of just doing your job. Because if you, t will be helpful, because if you take the focus off yourself, you know, sometimes what needs to be fixed just disappears. Mm. If you, if you. Mm. Time, time, I think definitely, you know, it's time. As I say, I say in, in the book, it is not in my nature to hurt people. And so I have to 
reconcile myself with the fact that I have done that. Indeed, I have done that. I tried very hard not to. I also say, and pretty much in the exact words, how is it possible to come out and not hurt your wife? No, of course it isn't. And so we have to... My, my um, greatest concern is that she's okay. And uh, that's why I picked this publisher. And I picked Michael Joseph because we had a... I didn't even know how books worked. I didn't... I, when I, no one knew I'd written the damn thing. I just kept it... I kept it secret until I virtually finished it because I didn't know whether I was going to finish it. Uh, and you have this round of... And all these lovely people all come on... It was on Zoom, obviously. But they all come up one by one by one. They do 20 minutes and they, you know, they tell you how wonderful you are and, and how lovely the book is and all of that sort of stuff. And uh, and they were all the publishing people are really lovely, um, and so uh, they were all incredibly flattering and all delightful. And at the end was Michael Joseph and a lady called Louise, who's the who's the boss there, and deal, I deal with her. And um, and uh, she said, and I also tell you this, I don't know that I've told anyone this, but Steph was on the other side of the laptop, and nobody nobody knew that Steph was in the room because I thought if I'm pitching my book, which you're in. Or not pitching it. I've already, you know, they're pitching that they want it. You're in it. You're featured in it. You should also hear the conversation. So today, nobody knew, but Steph was on the other side of the laptop listening. And uh, Louise came on and said, we're so excited about the book. Um, We'd love to publish it. How's Steph? And that was, there you go. That's, That's you. First thing, that's you. And they have been so lovely. Because this is a tricky time, you know. I've I've written a book, which I knew was going to be three quarters, more than three quarters of it is just this romp, this laugh, this crazy life, this brilliant. I'm so bloody lucky, and have always been lucky to have gone through life with these wonderful stepping stones that have always led me in the right direction. But at the same time, you get to here you get to this and I'm 58 and I you know I wonder whether it would have been better if I kept my mouth shut but I knew I couldn't I knew it would never have worked mentally it would never could never have worked so I had to do this but having done that yeah it's a slow work in progress because there are people who I've, I've said in there I feel like I have fallen into the crack between two lives you know you can't you can't go back you are scared of going forward um you know where where does where does this reconcile with itself in your head so you know i don't i don't know what'll happen i have no clue but you've done the most terrifying thing that you'll ever have to do so nothing's going to be that terrifying well i've talked about me which is really and i said this to you when we were live on the on the radio is that this is not what i do or what i have ever done i i you're so private usually i don't do this and so i any interview i've ever done if anyone's come anywhere near to you know family life or stuff yeah. like that you know i'm but i'm very careful i don't want to the, you know, i don't want the the girls to feel that they're on public show if they don't want to be on public show um and so i'm really very guarded about family life and then you know here i am but but it's a shock you know it's a surprise I knew when I wrote it that one day when I sat down to start and I thought if you finish this what are you going to do with it are you going to tell the office and if you tell the office then the genie's out the bottle because they won't let you sit on it 
you're going to have to do something with it. If you do something with it, you're going to have to publish it. If you publish it, you're going to have to talk about it. And there are parts of it which have been which are very difficult to talk about. Obviously, there are parts of it which have been it were immensely difficult to read out loud in the audiobook. I wanted it had to be my voice. I said, you know, it's got to be my voice. It can't be anybody else. Um, and that's why I, I could never have had a ghostwriter. It had to be my words. You have to know when you listen to it or you read it, it's got to be me that's talking to you. Um, but it's, that was bloody tough. That was reading some of those things out. You know, what do you think your dad would advise you to do now? Oh, that's like a grenade going off in my head. Left field. That was good. Well done. <laughs> I didn't intend to do no, that. No, I know it's you just, didn't. Just came to me just, uh, now. Just um, now. Uh, well, I... Forgive me. For uh, no, not at all. Um, I. When I went down to Cornwall and told my mum, this was very hard to read out loud on the audiobook. Um, in fact, we had about f f 10 or 15 attempts at it, and uh, I had to have a cup of tea and a, and a break. Um, I said to, I told my mum, and then I said, What do you think? What do you think Dad would have said? Would he still be proud? And thankfully, she said yes. So, as she said, I think he'll think he'll he'll think you're brave. Um, and he will would always be proud. So, that is good. What he would say now? Well, it's a modern phrase. It's a recent phrase, or a recent hashtag. But my dad was one of the kindest, sweetest, most lovely people ever. So I think he would um, adopt the hashtag which appears quite a bit in the book. And he would just say, just make sure you're kind. You are. You are kind. You're born kind. <laughs> would he not say, go and buy a chopper on eBay? <laughs> yeah, he might do. <laughs> might that help? He might do. Should yeah. we do that? Yeah. Should we buy two choppers? Let's buy two choppers. <laughs> Should we buy two choppers <laughs> and ride to Anton Dex? <laughs> Let's buy four. What a good idea. Yeah, we can go in like a squadron. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for being so candid. Well done. If there's anything I can ever do for you, let me know. Thank you. And let's go and see that hospice one day, shall we? Yeah. Okay, pal. Okay. Lots of love. Thank you. What a hero. What a hero. Not only Philip, but his wife and his family, and well done to all his friends and everybody he works with for supporting him and for keeping the cat in the bag during what must have been just the most challenging of circumstances within which to exist hope you enjoyed it I'm not sure if enjoy is the right word I hope you're inspired by it I felt honoured to be able to be sitting opposite him asking those questions and listening to the, the most honest of replies um, stay safe everyone see you next time please review rate and subscribe <laughs> <laughs>